ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Greg Cruz. It's your world, and yours, and yours, and yours for you to see. You don't have to be lonely, because it's your, once again, the smartest man in the world. Cast takes to the ether here from one of the most redolent and historically drenched neighborhoods here in Chicago, the Old Town District. It's not just a town, it's old. And we're up here and what's the name of this alley? Piper Alley, that's right here at uh, Chicago's premier uh, comedy theater, uh, a uh, comedy club, uh, the Up Comedy Club, right here in the heart of Chicago on uh, North Ontario and Wells, across from many Italian restaurants and a hideous Boston market that is to be avoided at all costs. <laughs> Once again, we find ourselves in the city of Big Shoulders, and I couldn't be more chuffed every time I come here. I have a marvelous time. Uh, I've been uh, nipping around today doing the press and whatnot. I, I didn't get to go to any museums. Uh, more's the pity next time. Uh, and, uh, but uh, I have to come and stay for a longer time than two days. I came early, meaning yesterday, thinking, oh, I'll get everything done. And then, no, passed out. <laughs> you know when you get to your room and you're like, I'm going to fucking go out and then I'm going to fucking... Oh, my God, this cereal is so intriguing. Uh, I want to thank everybody for all the lovely gifts here in Chicago. I, I get nothing but love here. And uh, uh, if I was a more sentimental person and this was a longer show, I would cry right now. Um, uh, from our friend Carlin, we've got uh, uh, Grace Lee Boggs' biography. I thank you for that. And Steve, uh, our buddy Ken, uh, uh, who's here with his wife, gave me a 1972 Giants um, lineup card with all of the names written in it. Yeah. Uh, and autographs of the Giants on the back. Our new friend Mike over here gave me a satchel page uh, of uh, art book, which is fantastic. And uh, The Wizard uh, hooked me up. And I thank you for that. Uh, I also had a story, an unsolicited story about the power she's. We never start the show with advertising because I say start with a big fucking story that's hilarious that has a giant explosive drug-laden ending. Um, <laughs> go big or go home, as they say. But uh, a, a young lady here is wearing a power sheath uh, of, of, of uh, Kittens McTavish, uh, who is also here tonight. And um, this is the city of Big Pussy. Yeah, I'll say. And, it, and uh, she said she started wearing it when the Blackhawks went to the playoffs, and look what happened. So that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you buy one, magic will occur in your life and that your wildest dreams will come true. But why not take a chance? Uh, so I'm over at, uh, I forget where we were today, we're over at the Rocon show, and, uh, and they're nice as can be, and we're waiting in the lobby, and Katie, the talk show, is on. Katie Couric has an afternoon talk show. I know you guys have lives and shit, and you're very busy, and you're rewriting the Bhagavad Gita, and you're translating shit, and I know. Your lives are rich with literature and art, and it's a pageant every moment that you spend. Uh, you're, you've just finished your pottery, and now you're going to you know, plant some you know, wandering Jews, and then you're going to go take the kids to the, the park and, and teach them yoga. I understand. And then you got to come back home because you got a Tai Chi class. I, I get it. I get it. Uh, but uh, Katie was on. And um, it's deep. Uh, I don't... You know, she was an anchor on a national news show. And uh, before that, she hosted a breakfast show for a long time. So if that's not journalism, I don't know what the fuck is. Now, Katie's all right. My favorite two moments of her career was when she got her uh, uh, colonoscopy. And she was awake through all of it. And she's going, oh, my beautiful colon, and laying there. And then I had to get one after her. And I was like, are you awake for the whole fucking thing? <laughs> I was never so scared in my life. You're not, by the way. In case you haven't got one, they knock you out. You're dead. You're dead to the world. You I woke up so high that I was like, I'm a race car driver. And my wife walked in, and I went, Jennifer, what are you doing here? My wife's here. And all the doctors started laughing. <laughs> 
fucking strong ass drugs. Really good, like Michael Jackson drugs, you know what I mean? Like, wow, I'm high. Wow, I'm high. He goes, uh, smooth, crim-. no, I can't remember all of it. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> we're wa- and then at the other moment, of course, was when Katie uh, Couric asked uh, Sarah Palin, who was at the time running for vice president of the United States, what newspapers did she read? do you read? And she went, all of them. And she was like, like, for instance, and any human, because we're all humans in this room, I presume, there's a few lower primates kicking around. This is Chicago, but most of us, somebody might have come from Missouri. You don't know. Oh, see what I did? Oh, that was cold. I've been on Missouri's dick too much lately. I, I, I have some people that I dearly love from Missouri. The Sklar brothers and Kathleen Madigan are from Missouri, and they're all very, very marvelous individuals. Uh, in any case, um, uh, <laughs> uh, Sarah Palin, a human being would have responded to that question with, well, I read the New York Times, and I read the Washington Times, and I read the Washington Post, and I read the Chicago Tribune, and I read you know, Al Jazeera and the BBC website and Guardian, and then sometimes I read Truth Out, and then I go to Fox News, and you know, maybe mention a few things. And she went, um, I read them all. And Katie was like, such as? And she's like, this is a trick question. I can't believe you lamestream media, fucking elite liberal types who hate America, pinning people down on the type of newspaper they read in the morning. What kind of fucking bullshit is this? And there was a whole shitstorm about the fact that Katie Couric asked what could be considered the simplest question that you, as a candidate, could have to answer. She didn't ask who the prime minister of Tajikistan was. It wasn't that tricky. Uh, who was the cat who owned uh, 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 um, uh, the pizza parlor and he wanted to be president? Herman Cain. Herman Cain is my name and my brain is insanely lame. Herman Cain, if you remember when, I don't need to know the president of Snazookazookazookastan and shit. Coming at me with the tricks and whatnot. No, if you're president, Snookastan's an issue. So I'm watching Katie in the lobby and uh, just digging it. And um, uh, she had Mary Tyler Moore on. I guess Mary Tyler Moore is doing a spot on one of the Nick uh, TV land shows with Betty White and whatnot. And, uh, and Mary Tyler Moore looks fabulous. Uh, uh, the same, you know, kind, you know uh, gorgeous and kind of like the Joker. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, when I was a little kid, they showed the Dick Van Dyke Show reruns on TV, and she was definitely one of the, like, cutest wives that was ever on TV, and very funny. And, oh, Rob! And then there's the Mary Tyler Moore Show, and, uh, oh, and then also Valerie Harper is, is recovering, and she's going to be on Dancing with the Stars. It's a big, big Mary Tyler Moore wash of nostalgia this week in the United States. For those of you listening in foreign countries, fuck it, I'm not explaining. And, um... <laughs> I don't have time and shit. How do you explain to people in Luxembourg who marrying Tyler Moore is? I guess is the question, really. Uh, exactly. Um, and so uh, Mary, Mary Tyler Moore was a TV star of enduring uh, quality here in the United States for a, a gajillion years. And by the way, if you're listening out in Proofcast land and you're making tea right now, this is an awesome time to bolster that tea with some meow meow. And... Um, <laughs> If you're driving, this is a really groovy time to get down some medicinal marijuana, perhaps the edibles, and then drive like fuck, because you don't know when they're going to kick in. 
If you're looking after children right now, great time to crack out a ball or something. What do kids like? Balls? I'm old school. Here's a cup and a stick. Get out of here. Here's a hoop. Here's some whitewash. Go paint a fence. Here, here's some line and a nightcrawler. Go down to the pond and see what you can bring back for dinner. Well, there weren't nothing but crappies. For those of you from Missouri, a line is what you use instead of your hand to, to grab fish with. That's just fucked. And, uh, as I was watching Mary Tyler Moore, I was sitting with young Stephanie, who's uh, an intern here. And all the people here are so nice. Uh, Jennifer Winken, who took me around today all day and, and bought me lunch and dinner. Oh, breakfast and dinner. She didn't buy me lunch. I had to buy my own lunch. Make a note. Lunch gratis. Non gratis. Okay. Um, and uh, we're watching Mary Tyler Moore, and I went like, oh my God, and I'd forgotten this because I'd buried it in the horror. You know there's parts of your mind where there's a closet that you only open rarely because sometimes you're, you're right. You're laying in bed. You know what I'm saying? Say you went to a ball game, you had five shots of tequila, you came home, you took a furtive nap, you have a screaming fucking headache over your left eye, your left sinus is just closed completely. You can't sleep at all, and all through your mind is running uh, uh, Ron Kittle from the old Chicago White Sox, and... <laughs> and your parents are, are chasing you with a cheese wedge you know what I mean like one of those afternoons and you can't fucking pull it together and then uh, that closet door opens and then you're like oh god why did I do that in 1987 um, I was in a television movie that Mary Tyler Moore was in in like 1987 88 I can't fucking remember I was in my I was living in San Francisco, and I got a part in this movie in L.A. I went down for it, and I had a call with the costumer, right? And the costumer was this ancient British queen. The name of the movie was Thanksgiving Day. And she played a, a messed up, you know, one of her usual neurotic housewife type, you know, oh, my God, I'm losing it. Kind of a, 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 what's that movie? Real People, right? Uh, not Real People. Um, what's the one with Timothy? Uh, ordinary. ordinary Real People. <laughs> I just put her on a show with Byron Allen and Skip Stevenson. Thank you. Ordinary People, which is one of her most superb. In any case, uh, this was a, a, a television picture, and uh, Cheesy doesn't begin to describe it. She's awesome. So I got a part as a chauffeur. Yeah, you fucking heard me. Because who wouldn't cast Greg as the chauffeur? Aren't chauffeurs always sexual totems, Greg, who look unbelievably fucking uh, uh, amazingly jumpable, like a, an, an enormous wooden... Yeah, like an enormous wooden statue full of totemic sex in their black uniforms and their shades and shit like that? Um, you? So, uh, I, I get a part in the movie. I have to call the costumer. I call the costumer. He's an ancient British queen. And he goes, I've got a costume for you, but you've got to bring down your own shoes. I go, I have dress shoes. I'll bring them down. I get down to L.A. I realize I've forgotten the dress shoes. I spend the night, the night before with my friend Forrest, who you may remember from certain stories on this podcast. I was in a comedy team with Forrest uh, back in the early 80s called Proops and Brakeman. And uh, we, we broke many barriers. One, we broke the unfunny barrier harder than any comedy team... <laughs> Of the, we never let the audience breathe. That was our motto. If, if they can breathe or laugh, we're not going fast enough. We were frenetic. 
Uh, we had a tin pan that we used to use. We did a song. We also did a, a parody of an ad called Killian's Irish Red that Christopher Plummer used to do from the early 80s. This will give you an idea. And I believe we had a tam o'shanter and a scarf and a shillelagh for that bit. And I remember we were breaking them out backstage at the Holy City Zoo in San Francisco. And Jim Samuels, who's an immortal comedian uh, who's long since passed and is uh, swirling effervescently in the stars as we speak, uh, turned to us and saw the props coming out of the bag. And he went, ah, props, the death of wit. <laughs> And then he goes, so you guys are a team, huh? And we're like, yeah, we're a team. We were like 22. He goes, you'll break up. And we went, no, we won't. We're friends forever. And she like that. And he goes, I was in a team. All teams break up. And when you split the jokes, it'll be like dividing your kids in a divorce. You have the boy. I don't want the boy. I want the brunette. It always gets laughs. Uh, That's how I divide children, by how many laughs they get. So... Uh, I spent the night with him. He's a sound guy in Los Angeles. And uh, uh, he goes, hey, Greg, uh, let me give you a tip tomorrow when, you sh- uh, when you're on the shoot. I go, yeah. And he goes, uh, don't move your head while you're talking, right? Don't go like this when you're delivering a line because it looks really unnatural. So I'm like, right, right, i got to remember that. I get to the set the next morning. The British guy goes, where's your shoes? And I'm like, I didn't bring them. And he went, the whole bloody point of our conversation was so you would bring the bloody shoes. And I'm like, I'm sorry I didn't bring them. Do you have any other shoes? He gives me like a pair of size four ballerina fucking, oh yeah. No, I'm wearing Mary Lou Retton shoes. You know what I mean? I've got like fucking the dinkiest shoes in the world on. They put me in the uniform. They go out to the set and they're like a giant black stretch limo. And I have to go up a circular driveway in Beverly Hills. And I go, uh, okay, I'll drive the car up the driveway. And they go, you can't wear your glasses. I go, but I, I, I have to wear my glasses. They go, no, no glasses. Your character doesn't wear glasses. I go, I can't see. Like there's bats who go A, E, F, G, A. You know what I mean? I'm not one of those bats. I, I can't, if I take my glasses off, I'm like, I'm t- I'm on, you can leave me on a rock. I'm like Piggy in Lord of the Flies. I just cry on the beach the whole time. Later, I'm hunted down and killed by the more fit, younger, sexier boys who look like uh, Balthazar Getty. So... Uh, I take my glasses off and I'm to drive up a driveway in a giant limo that's a couple hundred yards and I'm like, oh fucking yeah. I drove like one mile an hour bouncing off the side the whole way, bang, bang, bang. I'm sure they had someone redo the shot. I'm sure they had a grip come in and just do the shot after. Because I'm like, so here's my line. I had one line in the movie. I knock on the door, Mary Tyler Moore's supposed to answer and I'm supposed to say, The limousine is here for the Schloss family children. I know what you're thinking, because I was thinking the same thing. This is the worst line in the history of theater. Aeschylus never wrote a line this shitty. This is shitty. How are you supposed to say Schloss family children? I'm nervous. My mouth is dry. I can't see. I'm blind. I just bounced up a driveway. I'm wearing size four ballerina shoes. My toes are inside my anus right now. I'm hurting every which away. It's fucking hot. I'm wearing a chauffeur uniform with a fucking hat like 1953. From a, I'm wearing an outfit from the movie Sabrina. I drives up the driveway. I barely get out of the car. I manage to close the door. I ring the doorbell. Mary Tyler Moore answers the door. And all I can think of is don't move your head. Now I'm rigid. Ding dong, she opens the door. Limousine is here for the Schloss family children's. Cut. 
Greg, what are you saying? I'm, I'm sorry, can we do that again? Yeah, please, let's do that again. She rings the, I ring the doorbell, she opens the door. I pretend to act, because I have a scene, right? I know the camera's on me. So I like look around, like I'm looking at the house. Cut! <laughs> Greg, what are you doing? Well, I thought I'd look around when I, no, just say your line. <laughs> My toes are, say your line. <laughs> I'm sorry I smashed, say your line, action. Ding dong, opens the door. The limousine is here for the Slosh family children. Cut, print it, perfect, moving on. I'm almost sure I said Slosh family linen. When Mary Tyler Moore, and she should live forever, when she's lying in those last few golden moments reliving her life, there's gonna be one moment of acting that she remembers. <laughs> that was a sour apple and an enormous barrel of ripe cherries. She's going to think back to the movie Thanksgiving Day and go, God, that was uncomfortable. Why didn't he move his head? Why did he stand like a tailor's dummy? And then, then the other take, why did he go like this? like an iguana scouting his territory. Why did I get Meerkat Manor to act against? <laughs> the limousine is here for the... <laughs> the Meerkat is a wooden actor from San Francisco <laughs> whose feet are bunched up in tiny shoes that are meant for a Hyrax. Yes, I said Hyrax. Uh, right. Uh, should I read? I'm going to read this. People write me. If you want to write me, uh, uh, fanmail4greg at gmail.com. And as we know, Gmail is uh, observed by Google, who is giving it away to the government every time. Someone wrote me the other day and went, hello, NSA. <laughs> uh, Google admitted that all Gmail accounts are tapped at all times. Uh, this is from Chris. Hi, Greg. I was listening to your new podcast while making dinner, uh, parentheses, or Perrin, shrimp tacos, and Perrin. And I, awesome, by the way. Uh, I hadn't considered that, but now I am since Chris hit me to the jive. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast right now, this is a groovy time to make shrimp tacos. <laughs> I don't know where you're going to get tortillas in Luxembourg. You're going to have to... <laughs> you're going to have to phone another country. Because in Spain, a tortilla is a little egg dish. It's like an omelet. It's not a tortilla. So you're going to have to fucking call your friends in, in, you know, Mexico and have them send you a bag. Uh, but I guess you could do a shrimp taco without the tortilla. You just make the shrimp and then, you know, put some onions on it and then just go, taco! <laughs> and I couldn't help but send you an email. I have no idea what one does uh, the, the other. I, I'm not a big student of causality, or, 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 or no, nor do I uh, pretend to understand solipsisms in any way. But this doesn't make sense to me logically, and I'm not Nietzsche, but follow me on this. I was listening to your new podcast while making dinner, and it's spelled diner, by the way. <laughs> Let's add an extra N there. I was listening to your new podcast while making diner, shrimp tacos, and I couldn't help but send you an email. Oh, I see, because you were listening. Oh, it does make sense now. Uh, <clears throat> I just got a job, although the diner part had me baffled. Do you work in a diner where they make shrimp tacos? And if you do, does Billy Joel ever come in and sing Uptown Girl? Oh, no, that was a filling station. 
town square. You've been living in an uptown world. I just got a job as a public records officer for the state agency in Washington State. Washington State. Ah. I'm charged with... <laughs> Dude. Washington State. Broham. It is Broham, isn't it? I am charged. I am charged. with. Ke- I am charged. Upon me has been bestowed the benison. I am charged. I have been deputized with keeping the department in compliance with the State Public Records Act, the PRA. It is great, and I love the job. Unlike FOIA, the state PRA is heavily weighted toward the public and has been upheld in court very broadly in favor of disclosure of state records. That said, I am able, with the force of law, to shed light on what the government is up to, but only if it only works if people request records. If you want a legal method to see a state government agency shit a brick, write to one and ask for any and all records they have. There is little to no recourse for this type of request, and not only represents years of work for a low-paid paper pusher, it raises the specter that all of the stuff they want, hidden, may be brought out. And this is from a paper pusher in Washington State. So here in the... Are you a commonwealth in Illinois, or are you a state? You're a state. Good for you. I don't fucking trust those commonwealths. Like Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and shit. Or, or Texas. We're a republic. No, you're not. Republics let women get abortions and shit. <laughs> Republics don't lie and say that women brought shit into a fucking congressional, uh, right? A state legislature meeting. Yeah. Republics aren't afraid of over 50% of the population. Republics embrace them. You mean like ancient Greece? No, I mean other more enlightened republics. <laughs> like the Spartans, for instance. They want a republic, Greg. No, but they let women do stuff. They said, I am able. Uh, if you want a legal method, da, 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 da. Hooray. Oh, and then I wrote him back and I said, I'm going to read this on the show. This is the response email from two days later. Hooray, exclamation point. If you want, I'll just cross that out. <laughs> Hooray is an exclamation. If he had written, er, um, then maybe an exclamation point after it. Hooray indicates, you know, huzzah. Uh, If you want, you can point them to RCW 42.56, which I Googled down and put in my little, uh, 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 you know, search engine there. And RCW 42.56 comes up and it's the entire book on how to petition the state of Washington uh, for records, which is the state law. And the attorney general's office has a pretty good idea how-to on their website. I'm a big believer in government transparency as a pillar of information needs if the community, if the community. I am a big believer (laughs) in government transparency as a pillar of information needs if the community. What? Oh, no, of the community. Thank you. You know, I get caught up in a preposition and I get stuck there all night. You know how when you're driving home and you're kind of drunk and you stop at a coffee shop and the next thing you know, you've been at the coffee shop for like two and a half hours. And then you're out in the parking lot bullshitting with all your friends and you're like, fuck, we, be, we could have been home. Of, of. Hopefully, what's up? Hopefully I'll remember to send you the Knight Commission report on community information needs something, something. It's kind of long, but in, don't send it to me. But it's, I don't have time. 
I have a satchel page book I have to read. Um, an interesting look at what we information would support our own communities. Chris, thank you for that, Chris. Uh, so I urge you, if you're in the state of Washington, I'll read it one more time. Capital RCW 42.56. Um, petition your state that you live in right now to reveal any and all records to you all the time. We live in what is supposed to be a democracy, which means the government is supposed to be transparent. You mean like they're supposed to tell you that they're spying on you before whistleblowers blow that out of the water? Or they're supposed to tell you they're waging illegal wars and spending your money in a dazzling variety of ways? Or they're supposed to tell you that the government is spending money on giant defense contractors and wasting it all in that regard? Or they're supposed to tell you that they're dispensing with votes and eradicating people off the voter rolls and, and, and making everyone who's ever been in prison ineligible to vote till the end of time and that they're passing through an unbelievable unconstitutional laws about having to show your ID when you vote and shit like that? Yes, that's what I mean. And the states have to be held to account because as you've noticed, the federal government, uh, what's the phrase? Ain't doing shit. So if you live in North Carolina right now or Texas right now or Oklahoma right now or North Dakota right now or Virginia right now or any number of states, Ohio, you may want to think about petitioning uh, the state government for every bit of information you can get out of them and then putting it in a book and then driving around in a van that says John Lennon was killed by Bigfoot. Bill Clinton said, a great democracy, in fact, he said it but a week ago, a great democracy does not make it, I'll do it as Bill Clinton, it's funner that way. <laughs> great democracy does not make it harder to vote. <laughs> than to buy an assault weapon. <laughs> Her name is Rio and she dances on Martin Luther King said, I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, in the world today, my own government. That is as true today as it was when Martin Luther King said it. And James Baldwin, the immortal author, said, um, and this one I think it really speaks to the heart of America right now because we're having a big discussion and all the shit's hit the fan and now we no longer trust anyone and it's, we're all at odds and I get it, I get it, I get it and everyone's all upset and the economy's freaky and the world's coming to an end. However, what we have is now, right? Um, the fierce, what did Martin Luther King say? Uh, immediacy of now. Um, James Baldwin said, not everything that is faced can be changed. Mm. So understand that you're going to look at some people, you're going to look at some viewpoints, you're going to look at the way, uh, what you perceive as intractability on, in some regards, and you must face it. Uh, I think that's the honest thing to do. Uh, I understand that people have a different opinion than me. I embrace that. It's not something that depresses me or makes me upset. It makes me think, well, um, they're incredibly wrong and misguided. How can I, how can I light a torch that might illuminate their path? That's so precarious as they run over, as they skip over the moldy rocks of their own hideous belief systems <laughs> toward the inevitable volcanic lava pool that they're going to end up in and have to face God smoking a turd in purgatory. And God, as you know, is a Filipino lesbian midget <laughs> with an enormous clit ring that says girl power. No, everyone's entitled to their opinion, no matter how hideously misguided it is. That's what makes America groovy chickens. However, not everything can be changed, and you have to understand that as well. But the things that can be changed must be faced. Let's get to what is what. 
Miley Cyrus, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I was playing a clip today of Miley Cyrus. This was uh, from yesterday. And she said, uh, 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 I, I knew we were going to make history. We're going to make history when we went out there at the VMAs. I said to Robin Thicke, we're going to go out there and make history. And then I can't believe people are talking about this three days later. So let me get this straight. History happened 72 hours ago. And is barely discernible through the fog of time. The incredible mists that blind us to what our previous past was envelop us so quickly now. Once upon a time, we might say, thank you. Once upon a time, we might say, Joan of Arc's heroic rescuing of France was history. Or that... (laughs) Harriet Tubman uh, uh, rescuing... uh, Dozens and dozens of people on the Underground Railroad, sometimes at gunpoint, by the way. If there were recalcitrant slaves who did not wish to join Harriet on her unbelievably dangerous journey north, she would pull out a pistol out of her vestments and go, you'll be free or die. I think that's what Miley's referring to. That kind of history. The important kind. The kind that worlds are moved on. When Boudicca faced down the Roman legions and used to rip the arms out of Roman collaborators in her day. When Eleanor Roosevelt stood tall and resigned her position with the Daughters of the American Revolution so the black operatic diva Marianne Anderson could sing at the Washington Monument. This is the kind of history Miley's talking about. She turned to a dude in a Beetlejuice outfit... And when, when I butt rump you in these PVC flesh colored tights, <laughs> this show should be chiseled on the walls of Corinth. <laughs> this should be a stila in the town square at Chichen Itza so that all Mayans may revel in my glory. Now, I won't have slut-shaming. I was very upset with how uh, immediately the media jumped on her dick. And when uh, she's 20 years old, she's acting like a slut. She used to be a Disney star. What happened to America's idols and shit like that? Fuck you. Get your own fucking idols. Every single Disney star of the last 20 years, outside of Justin Timberlake, has either had a coke problem, a booze problem, or both, or schizophrenia, or fucking bipolar personality. Disney is not a training ground for mental health, if we've not noticed that over the last 20 years. I mean, Demi Lovato, Britney Spears, when you shave your head and beat a car to death with a broom and shit like that, you know what I'm talking about. But, as a country, we're very, very, very comfortable with shitting on young girls and their errant behavior. Whereas older men, for instance, when any older man breaks up with his wife, like I remember when Paul McCartney broke up with Heather Mills, he was at Hogs and Heifers in New York, which is, as you know, the bar that's depicted in the unbelievably classic movie, Coyote Ugly. And... As I said at the time when the movie came out, the bar Hogs and Heifers in New York is the most heinous... uh, The the amount of fuckery and douchebaggery is incalculable there. (laughs) Honestly, uh, Euripides from Syracuse could not have calculated geometrically the amount of fuckery at the bar Hogs and Heifers. 
There is an incalculable amount of douchebaggery. And yet, when Harrison Ford broke up with his wife, when Paul McCartney broke up with his wife, next thing you know, they're in a trucker cap on the bar with a bunch of girls at 55 years old going, turn it up, sweet home Jack Nicholson beat a car to death with a golf club and he gets called a bad boy in the media. But a young girl who fucking wants to be a young girl, if you're not, if you can't dress in rubber panties and have giant teddy bears having Furby sex with you on stage and then pretend to butt rump fucking Beetlejuice at the VMAs, I ask you, America, at what age are you to do it? If Mary Tyler Moore got up and wore PVC fucking flesh-colored tights and rubbed up against Dick Van Dyke wearing a Beetlejuice outfit while Bob Newhart wore a fucking Furby outfit behind them, yeah, and Betty White had a fucking giant purple invader coming over and shit, people would be like, ew, gross and shit, that's unseemly. When you're young, when you're young. As Fran Lebowitz said, as you get older, the pictures you took when you were 40 that you, saw, that you thought sucked, when you get older, you're like, ooh, I look good. <laughs> then Miley carried on after that, and the rest of the quote was, um, uh, you know, people are still talking about it. I didn't even think about it. I don't think. I didn't think. I didn't think. She said, I don't think, four times. <laughs> if you're giving a considered answer about your antics at a media event that's become a circus, I think not saying I don't think is a good idea, I think. <laughs> You should think about what you're saying and then not mention that you don't think because saying you don't think makes you a fucking hillbilly cracker who's the daughter of Billy Ray Cyrus. We're all trying to let that go. Weren't you the artist who said, hey, it's a party in the USA. You thought about what country you lived in. Um, first of all, Robin Thicke got off scot-free. And, exactly. He's married. Uh, he had his hand up a girl's dress after the show. That had to go down pretty good with the wife when she sees that fucking picture in the tabloids the next morning when you've got your hand like... You know, like, okay. Uh, and we're always comfortable with demonizing... Uh, whether it's Whitney, uh, uh, Houston, or Lauren Hill, or Rihanna, if they get high and they act crazy, they're crazy. Women are crazy. Women are crazy. Chris Brown, on the other hand, huh, one of the fucking boys. <laughs> you know, sometimes bitches give you lip and you're like, me, me, me. Your high peeping voice is going, it's putting my teeth on edge. I said, shut the fuck up. Now, who doesn't want to look at pictures of my big dick and listen to me whine on Twitter? <laughs> right? Men are men. We rule. Fucking men are so cool. I wish I was a man. Chris Brown has a career. That's all you need to know about the United States. Chris Brown has a career. He beat the living fucking daylights out of his girlfriend, and we all know it. And then he's on TV all the time going, oh, no, I don't get no respect. Yeah. You've got to earn it, Mr. Brown. Um, there was a lot of big black women on stage, you may have noticed, when Miley was, was sticking her tongue out and butt-rumping fucking Beetlejuice. 
we can make that argument if you want to be a commodities esthetician and break it down semantically. That once again, we were supporting the dominant paradigm of, if you'll pardon the expression, the skinny white bitch versus the rather well-rounded black person and that the skinny white bitch is the ultimate in sexual awesomeness and that the uh, well-rounded black woman is always a support act to that so that they are objectified and that we are... uh, No one's buying this. Okay, in any case, no, you are buying it. You know what I'm saying. There was a million levels that this was fucking working on. That act was working on a million levels. Miley made one great point. She went, Lady Gaga did it, Madonna did it, everyone did it. The reason you go on the show is to do it. And that is the reason you go on the fucking VMAs. They're called the Video Music Awards. And they're uh, exactly the opposite of what they are. What MTV does is denigrates music to the point and commercializes it and corporatizes it to the point where it's not music anymore. Every single song by Katy Perry or whoever you can think of that was on the show sounds like it was written by a machine, just like in uh, 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 1984 by George Orwell, where all pop music is written by machines and uh, is uh, you know, sort of mo- genetically modified and recombinantly DNA altered so that it goes directly into your brain and becomes, as Arthur C. Clarke called them so brilliantly, an earworm that you can't get rid of. So that you hear it for the rest of the fucking day. You hear Miley's song the rest of the and it becomes kind of a virus in your head. There's no emotion involved in it. There's no group sitting down to fucking write it. There's no band playing or whatever. It's simply something to extricate money from you so that you download it or that you buy whatever fucking nonsense you're supposed to buy from all these artists. Was MTV different at any other point? When it first, first, first started and they had no idea what it was, I think it was a little more wild card because it would be fucking Haircut 100 followed by Susie and the Banshees. And then, yeah, then Michael Jackson doing Billie Jean and you were like, hey, this is okay. What the fuck's happening here? They have no idea what they're doing. And then they didn't have black people on for a while. And then someone tripped over a peanut, yeah, in New York in like 1985 and went, we should have hip hop. In the early MTV, you'd see uh, uh, broken glass everywhere, people pissing on the street, and like, I just don't care. You'd see Grandmaster Flash and shit like that. You'd see cool stuff and prints and whatnot. Um, uh, Yeah, the VMAs are a barren wasteland of schlock and cheap sex, and there's no other way around it. It's worse than going to a fucking titty bar. You know what I'm saying? Because at a titty bar, women get money at the end of the day. At the VMAs, you're just left with that horrible feeling like, I touched myself and I feel real awful about it. But if you're going to be asked to give a quote to the media, don't say, I don't think, four times. In a, in one, in a two-sentence quote, don't say, I don't think. Say, don't, in fact, don't mention thinking at all. <laughs> Let thinking be an assumption that we all presume you do. <laughs> you know, before I come up here for the show, I don't even think about it. You know what she said? And this was the part I love the most, because it reminds me of when people have unsupportable belief systems where they're like, they hate fags or whatever. And then they go, it's just what I believe. It's how I grew up. Like, oh, I see, so you're incapable of uh, analytical thought. Um, She went, I don't think, it's just me. It's like, wow, okay. I didn't realize there was such a volcanic cornucopia of creativity bursting forth through the Miley Cyrus mantle onto the surface of the earth. Yes, there's nothing like Furbies and Beetlejuice and black women with big booties to really be just you. Which, by the way, is a great weekend. <laughs> uh, a men's magazine called Cave, or if you will, Cave, 
I, I did an interview with them several months ago, and I, I, I read this in the Galway episode. Uh, but the Galway episode's never coming out, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Um, oh, don't even pretend you're disappointed. Um, <laughs> Why, Greg, why? We were in a, uh, an airless room, and I had the best time in Galway and, and in Dublin as well, Ireland. Uh, as I've said so often on the show, aside from the misogyny and the poverty, is fucking magic. And, uh, uh, and uh, this, it, uh, it's just not funny enough to put out, quite frankly. But anyway, Cave, Cave uh, interviewed me, and they, they were trying to be cynical and smart-assy, and I loved that about them. And so this is what uh, they wrote me. What's with the obituaries and poetry reading during your podcast? Do you hope someone will celebrate your life's work after you pass? <laughs> and I wrote Cave back. And I said, poetry and remembering the dear ones help soothe the pain of this mortal coil. I hope for my eulogy to be given while I stand. That way, I can correct any errors. <laughs> What's with the poetry and eulogies, really? We live in a world where Donald Trump is encouraged to share his thoughts. And Dick Cheney rests unjailed on a throne made of dead babies and money. You can't out cynical. I will out cynicize you. You can cynicize me, but I will cynicize you. Uh, Seamus Haney passed away this week, and he's swirling in the heavens. Seamus Haney was... Uh, Poet, fucking A, Poet Laureate of Ireland. Uh, I figured in Chicago there'd be more patties, but evidently not in this crowd here tonight. Uh, Seamus Haney was an Irishman uh, from Northern Ireland. He was Poet Laureate. He won a Nobel Prize for literature, one of the few uh, uh, and, and exquisite poets. Uh, in recent years, let me just read you a little bio of him. In recent years, he's been the recipient of several honorary degrees. He's a member of Ast O'Donna, the Irish Academy of Artists, and writer's foreign member of the American Academy in 1996, subsequent to winning the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1995. He was made a Commandeur l'Ordre des Arts et Lettres by the French Ministry of Culture. <laughs> I would like to read you a poem by Seamus uh, Haney. It's not a deep, heavy one. It's a good, fun one. It's called The Otter uh, by Seamus Haney. When you plunged, the light of Tuscany wavered and swung through the pool from top to bottom. I loved your wet head and smashing crawl, your fine swimmer's back and shoulders surfacing and surfacing again this year and every year since. I sat dry-throated on the warm stones. You were beyond me. The mellowed clarities the grape deep air thinned and disappointed. Thank God for the slow loading. When I hold you now, we are close and deep as the atmosphere on water. My two hands are plumbed water. You are my palpable live otter of memory in the pool of the moment. Turning to swim on your back, each silent thigh-shaking kick, retilting the light, heaving the cool at your neck, and suddenly you're out, back again, intent as ever, heavy and frisky in your freshened pelt, printing the stones. Yeah. Fantastic. Seamus Haney. The mellowed clarities, the grape-deep air, uh... Thank God for the slow loading. 
You are my palpable, lithe otter of memory in the pool of the moment. Oh, my God. <laughs> poetry's moving. That's why we read it on the show. And as I've said so many times, we're not down with poetry as much in America because it's not written on money. <laughs> I heard an interview with Seamus Haney once, several years ago, on the radio. And uh, are you going to say radio the whole night? If I, yes. I have, my R's are troublesome. Uh, may I have another vodka-flavored vodka drink if anyone is? Thank you, my darling. Just ice and maybe a lemon. Thank you, precious. Um, uh, and and uh, the woman, I can't remember what show it was. I want to say fresh air, but it might not have been. In any case, she goes, um, uh, you're, you live in Ireland and you're a poet. And he goes, yeah, in Ireland, uh, poets are stars. If I lived in the United States, no one would fucking care that I was a poet. <laughs> and that's the difference. Um, Irish people have a lot of faults, as we've discussed previously. Um, <laughs> but one fault they don't have is not appreciating poetry. Uh, they hold it to their hearts. And, uh, and good for them. And we should as well. And we do. We do. Uh, Shall I read some of this? I guess so. Haney was born on a small farm near Tombridge in County Derry in 1939, the eldest child of an ever-growing family. In his Nobel address in Stockholm, he spoke lovingly of his childhood in a three-room thatched farmhouse at Mossbawn, where in their early years, he and his siblings passed, quote, a kind of den life, which was more or less, more or less emotionally and intellectually proofed against the outside world. He went to St. Columns College in Derry City. Uh, and a transition, as he said... This is from The Guardian, by the way. From the earth of farm labor to the heaven of education. And that's something everyone can aspire to because education is a gift and education is a kind of heaven. I don't mean that everyone should be smart and I don't disapprove of anyone for being stupid. Ignorance is what I detest. Stupidity is merely a lack of the opportunity to avail yourself of learning. And not everyone has the opportunity to learn all the time. He grew up in a thatched hut in fucking County Derry. And he called it the heaven of education. And then you heard... Thank you, Precious. He heard the... Uh, oh, I'll just get it myself, shall I? Thank you. <laughs> thank you, darling. That'll be all. And, um, and then he got to go to college and he found that education was heaven to him. And I think that particularly here in Chicago, where education is a point that is hotly contested at the moment, that um, letting people who are underprivileged in certain ways economically receive an education and therefore be exposed to literature and poetry and the things that can uplift us, not just the act of learning literature and poetry. That's an empty act, unless you understand that it illuminates a whole other area and that philosophy comes after that. And then your perspective begins to change. And then you're not inundated by the VMAs and all the crappy shit and corporate bullshit that's shoved up our butt each day of our lives to take our money away from us. You're aware of another world, a world that exists simultaneously in this world that we live in, a world that's full of poetry. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. Every one of you walking on the streets of Chicago today said to someone else, what a beautiful fucking day today. No one told you to say that. You felt it. You felt it. We all feel it. And I think when you get a little bit of education, uh, and I have none. I didn't graduate college and I was fucking smoking pot in high school, you know, like, 
I, I just feel like... Uh, what did you say, baby? Obviously. Thank you. Touche. Or as the Smothers Brothers said, touchy. Uh, he contributed a first edition of Death of a Naturalist to a recent auction in the aid of a writer's charity, Penn, writing in pencil above the poem, Out of Potato Digging, that the critic Anthony Thwaite once described me to my face as the laureate of the root vegetable. It is a brilliant poem. And Are you from Ireland, darling? No. <laughs> no. You're from here, this very room. You're from Piper Alley, are you? Uh, well, but I'm glad you have an appreciation of it. Many of the poems he wrote in the 70s and 80s during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, and this is where the English and the Irish can uh, be characterized as such. Understatement is the strongest part of their game. We're talking about a civil war that raged on and off for, what, four or five hundred years? And in the 70s and 80s, when it was at its uh, unbelievably hideous height, when Douglas Hurd's wife had her legs blown off, when Lord Mountbatten was blown up, when there were bombs everywhere. When I first went to London, there were always IRA bombs everywhere. The bank down the street got blown up from my house. Everywhere you'd go, there'd be people checking cars and shit. Every single dressing room you went into, it said, do not touch a package if you see an unattended. It was a fucking real situation. They called it the Troubles. <laughs> If there were people leaving bombs everywhere in Chicago, and when you went to fucking Macy's on the Miracle Mile and shit like that, there was a giant sign that said, don't touch that fucking brown package. I don't think we'd be calling it the Troubles. It would be like, Ragheads 2013. You can't trust them, because they're slightly different than fat white people. Fox News presents... The Troubles, are in flinching. And this, this is the line I wanted to read you because this was in a regular newspaper, The Guardian. Well, kind of a newspaper. The regular, it's the UK Guardian. You know what I'm talking about. Many of the poems he wrote in the 70s and 80s during The Troubles in Northern Ireland are unflinching threnodies for a terrible time. And I had to look it up because I did not know what threnodies meant. And I thought that was written for regular people to read in a regular newspaper. And the presumption being that you would know what a threnody was. Um... And I think that's beautiful. As H.L. Mencken once said, aside from being an anti-Semite and other disqualifying qualities that H.L. <laughs> Mencken possessed, one, his unflagging cynicism, and uh, two, H.L. Uh, Mencken distrusted religion probably more than any other human that ever lived next to Ambrose Bierce. And um, this is the definition of threnody from Merriam-Webster. Noun, threnody, plural, threnodies. Definition of threnody, a song of lamentation for the dead, elegy. Colon, elegy. See threnody, defined for the English language, blah, blah, blah. And then this is the example they give. And the examples are usually awful, but this one is a little better than usual. The composer's cello concerto. <laughs> the swift brown fox sang a threnody for his... The composer's cello concerto, which is a small, intense poem right there. The composer's cello concerto was composed... Okay, now the sentence is just repetitive. <laughs> if you're calling someone a composer, obviously they compose. 
The composer's cello concerto was composed as a moving threnody for his late wife. Mm, it's okay. It doesn't quite give you the... De- I believe when you use the word in a sentence, the definition should be implicit, right? It should be absolutely implied so that you understand it. The origin of threnody, and I'm sure you're not surprised by this, it's Greek. Uh, the Greek threnodia from trenos dirge plus aiden to sing more at drone, right? So, right, a dirge, a drone, a lamentation. In ancient Greece, when they would have a funeral, people were uh, hired, uh, people were professional and still are in Greece, that walk behind the casket and do nothing but sing a mourning song, right? And when I say a mourning song, I mean an M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G mourning song. They sing, they don't get up and go, glibby glap, gloopy, dibby dabby doopy, ba 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 bo, saba subi saba, dibby abo. The earth says hello, you twinkle above us. I mean, it's more, you know, you know. (laughs) Synonyms, uh, the things that are the same. Dirge, elegy, requiem, lament. Related words, taps. Mm. Elegiac, also elegiacal. Monody. And that one blew my mind, a monody, right? So a threnody is many and a monody is one, right? I didn't look it up, you can look it up. Near antonyms, an aconium, a eulogy, a paeon, and a panegyric. Panegyric, people don't use nearly enough. Paeons is all we do on this fucking show. Uh, And eulogies are our stock and trade. Uh, Seamus Haney is in that enormous thatched hut in the sky tonight, looking up at the stars, thinking of a clever way to explain them to us. Heaven was his metier. The very cosmos was his milieu. He brought down what the gods wanted us to know and put it on paper. And God bless Seamus Haney for that. Or, or Seamus Haney, if you wish to pronounce his name correctly. I said Seamus Haney. I turned into one of my relatives. Seamus Haney. On receiving the David Cohen Prize, blah, 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 let's move on. Uh, uh, speaking of poetry, oh, one last thing from Seamus Haney. At the close of his Nobel address, he spoke of poetry's power to do the thing which, is always it, which always is and always will be to poetry's credit, the power to persuade that vulnerable part of our consciousness of its rightness in spite of the evidence of wrongness all around it, the power to remind us that we are hunters and gatherers of values, that our very solitudes and distresses are creditable insofar as they too are an earnest of our veritable human being. Uh, there he is. Here's a poem that I really like because it's about drinking. And uh, <laughs> it's from Charles Bukowski, the immortal alcoholic and poet. It's called Soiree. And, uh, and this one I think you'll dig. I'll do it as Bukowski because I think it's funnier. <laughs> In the cupboard sits my bottle. <laughs> like a dwarf waiting to scratch out my prayers. I drink and cough like some idiot at a symphony. Sunlight and maddened birds are everywhere. The phone rings, gamboling its sound against the odds of the crooked sea. I drink deeply and evenly now. I drink to paradise and death and the lie of love. Fantastic. Uh, Bukowski's always up there. Another person passed away this week. A British uh, host you may have heard of named David Frost passed away this week. And David Frost... uh, I 
had occasion to meet him once. Uh, several years ago, I uh, was playing in Edinburgh, and uh, my wife uh, met a cat backstage named Peter, and uh, he invited me to do this show, and it was uh, a Peter Cook benefit uh, concert. This was when Bush was president. That's how I remember it. And uh, it was a wild show. Everybody was there. A lot of British comedians, if you know them. Um, uh, uh, Rick Mayall and Aid Edmondson, Dom Jolly, Jonathan Ross, Dave Badil. Uh, 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 Terry Jones directed the show Michael Palin was there um, Oh yeah, Josie Lawrence sang a song I got up and did stand-up uh, Jimmy Carr got up and did stand-up um, It was really wild So I was really glad I did it I flew over on my own and I did it on the night And just did a stand-up set about Bush uh, And Well, it was the beginning of the Iraq War and all that jazz And uh, uh, David Frost introduced me at this show and he went, he's Marge Proop's little boy. Marge Proop's was the Dear Abby of England. Uh, people wrote, uh, she was what they call in England an agony auntie. Uh, so you would write and go, my husband doesn't pay attention to me and what no more. <laughs> and I don't know if I answer the name, but what should I do? And, and Marge Proop's would write you back. She was a married Proop's, by the way. Her, her, she married into the Proop's. Uh, which, why you would take that name? <laughs> if you were a woman and you had any fucking marbles, why you would take that name? But that's how David Frost introduced me, and so I got to meet him, and he was really nice. And um, uh, let's see, he, the, the first show he did was called "This Was the Week." That was the week that was. He went to Cambridge, and when he went to Cambridge, he went with John Cleese and all, like most of the Pythons, all the ones that didn't go to Oxbridge. Or, or Oxford, rather. They, they, they call the mafia in England uh, uh, Oxbridge, right? Because it's Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, that's where all the. Like in this country, when you watch a television show, um, a lot of the writers will be um, douchebags from Harvard. And uh, like SNL and shit like that. Um, a lot of the people will also be Second City alum, but a lot. One guy's shaking his head over here because you know what I'm talking about. Um, Hollywood is dominated by people wearing Boston Red Sox caps. And uh, they almost all went to Harvard or one of the schools around there, Princeton, Yale, da 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 da. And that's the mafia of show business. In England, it's Oxford and Cambridge, right? Um, it took a long time for people in the working class to ever break in into show business in both countries because of the clench that uh, these people have on show business. Um, I, I've worked with Drew Carey and Ryan Stiles. Both Ryan Stiles didn't go to college at all. Uh, Drew Carey went to college briefly. I never graduated college. We had a discussion one day on the bus with all of us, where there was a giant Who's Line group of people, and we were all on a big tour. And we went through everyone and saw who graduated college, and it was like two of us out of like eleven of us. <laughs> so here's my message: Don't stay in school. The heaven of education can be yours without college. So anyway, when he was at Cambridge, Peter Cook was one of his classmates. Peter Cook is maybe one of the most glorious comedians of all time. He was in a, a group called Beyond the Fringe, and then he was in a group, uh, or a team rather, with uh, Dudley Moore. So Peter Cook and Dudley Moore did a team for years and years. He was in a group with Jonathan Miller and uh, Alan Bennett, who, all of whom are geniuses. Now, uh, they invented the Edinburgh Fringe back in the day, right? When they started doing it, it was when it got popular. They went to London. They did a Western show. At, at, a, at a party, David Frost jumped in the pool, and he couldn't swim. And he started to drown, and Peter Cook saved him. For the rest of Peter Cook life, and I've seen him say it on, on television, at a Michael Parkinson show from the 70s, um, they say, Peter, what's the greatest regret in your life? And he says, saving David Frost from drowning. <laughs> oh my God. It's so fucking funny. 
It's the meanest thing you could ever say. But Peter Cook was that funny. Here's my two favorite Peter Cook jokes. There's one, there's an album called Ad Nauseam with him and Dudley Moore. They made uh, two unbelievable albums, right? One called um, Derek and Clive Live and one called Ad Nauseam. And they're drunk. And I mean, I don't mean drunk like I'm drunk now. I mean, they're fucking rat-assed, steamboats, fucking passed out in the gutter, tits up, watching the swirling vortex of stars, drunk, 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 drunk. But they're well-educated and they're fucking amazingly smart and they have total recall and they're just having a go at each other on Ad Nauseam, right? And... They're talking about what gives them the horn, right? Which means, I got a boner, right? What gives me the horn. And Dudley Moore goes, oh, the Bible. (laughs) The Bible doesn't half give me the horn. And Peter Cook goes, I wrote a letter to the Council of Churches. Dudley Moore goes, really? And he goes, yeah. I said, dear cunts in charge of religion. (laughs) Your guidebook, or whatever the fuck you call it. Doesn't half give me the horn. (laughs) Dear cunts in charge of religion. That joke is fucking transcendent. David Frost is the only person who have interviewed all eight British, uh, British prime ministers serving between 64 and 2010. Harold Wilson, Heath, Callahan, Thatcher, Major Blair, Brown, and Cameron. All seven presidents between 69 and 2008. Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, H.W., Bill, and W. Um, he produced the Nixon tapes on his own because no one would do it. It was his idea to go to San Clemente and go find fucking Tiberius, right? <laughs> Nixon removed himself from the public scene. After his um, um, uh, taking leave of the presidency, he moved to San Clemente, which is a small right-wing community uh, outside of Los Angeles, down the coast. And there's a famous picture of him in a black tie with black shoes and a formal white shirt walking down the beach like this in his shoes. (laughs) Because, as I say, like Tiberius... He's Caesar in exile, right? Although Tiberius was accused because he went to Capri for 10 years of his uh, 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 Caesarship um, of going there to be a pervert. He said he went to study. (laughs) Nixon went because he was exiled, gulag, right? Like, uh, we don't do this to many American leaders. I can't think of another American leader that was absolutely exiled to a rich beachfront property (laughs) where... And if you've seen the recent uh, tapes, uh, presidents were phoning him. He was phoning other presidents. He phoned Clinton and shit. He, you know, and, and re- if you remember when Nixon died during the Clinton administration, Clinton gave him this fucking giant eulogy and it canonized him as a great American. And he was a Democratic president. And Nixon, for those of you who are not old enough to remember, was the fucking W of the 70s <laughs> with intellect. Like, what if W was an acute lawyer who was canny and fucking could make decisions? He was that venal and that evil. Uh, Having said that, he opened China and Russia. Having said that, he was the only person. If another president had opened China and Russia, Nixon would have been the first in line to say, how dare you go open China and Russia? 
Uh, Nixon was an extraordinarily complex human being and one of the poorer presidents for which I always appreciated about him. Uh, You may remember the movie uh, Frost Nixon that Ron Howard did where Michael Sheen uh, played uh, David Frost and Frank Langella played Nixon. And Frank Langella, although way too tall to play Nixon, uh, did a fantastic job. You remember he was calling David Frost in the middle of the night drunk? David, they were all out to get us. It's because they went to good schools. You see, they were all rich. He was like, and I love that about Nixon. His paranoia is what makes him uh, beguiling and uh, any sympathy that you would have for Nixon, aside from the fact that he bombed Cambodia during Christmas <laughs> and sanctioned the use of Agent Orange and napalm on humans, which we'll get to in a minute when we talk about Syria. Um, I'm out of here. <laughs> someone went, I'm out of here. Uh, yeah. In any case... David Frost had the idea to go find the emperor and go talk to him. And he did, how many hours is the bloody Nixon thing? Oh, my God, it's long. If you've ever seen it, it's amazing. And, uh, and Nixon expatiates himself. He exonerates himself. He, he extrapolates. He, he, he prevaricates. He, he's honest in certain parts. It's, it's an extraordinary document. David Frost couldn't get any money from any network in England or America to do it, so he produced it on his own, and after that, produced every single fucking show on his own, and that's the lesson that he's learned. There's a lesson to be learned from two people, Buck Owens and Richard Nixon. Buck Owens wrote, They're gonna put me in the movies. They're gonna make a big star out of me. Make a film about a man who's sad and lonely, and all I gotta do is act naturally. Now, Buck Owens wrote that song and many other songs. Buck Owens sued all the record companies and got his own masters back and owned every single piece of property that he ever recorded in his lifetime as an artist. When Buck Owens died, he left an enormous fucking fortune. When they started Hee Haw in TV on the 70s, it got taken off CBS after the first year. Buck Owens personally went and syndicated that fucking show and sold Buck Owens guitars that were red, white, and blue in Sears all over America. Buck Owens was a financial genius. And, uh, and one of the ugliest people that was ever in show business. <laughs> Next to Buddy Rich, the drummer. And, and wrote a couple of... Uh, the Beatles uh, covered Buck Owens. Buck Owens had untold riches, man. And it wrote... Uh, what, I've got a tiger by the tail. It's plain to see. I won't be much winner. You get through my... The Bakersfield sound. Buck Owens and the Buckaroos wore mariachi outfits. Yeah, because he was from Bakersfield, man. Him and Merle Haggard uh, are the Bakersfield sound. And anyways, uh, that's... Uh, uh, David Frost is in heaven tonight. And... Desperate, desperate to get one final interview with Nixon. <laughs> He's chasing all those presidents and prime ministers around heaven tonight, right now. David Frost also had a, a talk show in the 70s, and Arthur Treacher was the co-host And uh, when I was a kid. And uh, I remember seeing Louis Armstrong on the show. I remember seeing uh, all these insane people. David uh, Frost didn't have a desk like David Letterman or, or Johnny Carson. David Frost sat in two swivel chairs like this with, with a clipboard. It was an afternoon talk show and, and he really sat like that With the fucking clipboard and the pen all the time And he'd go to the clipboard and then come back up with questions And stuff like that uh, He was an amazing talk show host In the day when we used to have uh, talk show hosts who weren't I mean I love Charlie Rose I've always thought he was an intelligent person But then of course I found out that you know whatever Anyway alright 
moving on. Uh, Elmore Leonard is in heaven tonight. Uh, dodging bullets. Uh-huh. And running rum. Uh, in 2001, author Elmore Leonard, uh, who died at 87, wrote a piece for the New York Times in which he laid out very simply his 10 rules for good writing. Uh, you can read the entire piece with explanations of the Times side if you wish. Uh, these are the basic precepts. Uh, and this is the best part. Uh, precepts, rather. Print them out, stick them up over your desk, use them wisely. If we have any writers here, and I think we do, we have a Seamus Haney girl. <laughs> Elmore Leonard wrote um, Jackie Brown, which was a novel called Rum Punch. Uh, he wrote Freaky Deaky. Uh, Elmore Leonard wrote Get Shorty. Uh, loads and loads. Real terse fucking writer, right? Uh, sort of Dietrich-centric. Um, I'm missing a couple of movies in there. He, loads, of, loads of it. And he wrote lots of westerns as well. What was it? Ombre. He wrote, three, he wrote the 310 to Yuma, which was remade several years ago with Christian Bale. But it's an awesome movie with Glenn Ford. Um, and he also wrote Ombre uh, with, with um, Paul Newman and Richard Boone. Where Richard Boone is one of the most lascivious fucking snarling criminals you'll ever see. <laughs> Oh, my God, that movie. And uh, to give you an idea of what Ombre's like, Paul Newman plays a Mexican. (laughs) You didn't know they had blue eyes and blonde hair, did you? In that movie, they do. Uh, Elmore Leonard is uh, eternal in American uh, prose. And he wrote, never open a book with weather. Avoid prologues. Never use a verb other than said to carry dialogue. And I've read the extended version. Because people always say, like, uh, in, the, in the old pulp novels, uh, 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 drop the gun, he lipped thinly. <laughs> now, if you're Cormac McCarthy, you don't even say said. There's just nothing. People just talk. And you're like, who the fuck's talking? Or Faulkner. Who's talking? Who's been talking for the last 20 minutes? How come the same person has 12 different names? If you're Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, the same person has 18 different names in the same book, and you're like, well, who the fuck's talking now? It's when people say, he exhorted. She exclaimed. Uh, Never use an adverb to modify the verb said. He admonished gravely. And, and I concur, he intoned solemnly. <laughs> Keep your exclamation points under control. I would say more than that. Keep them in a corral and never let them out. You are allowed no more than two or three, exclamation points, per 100,000 words of prose. That's about... Three Elmore Leonard novels. Never use the word suddenly or all hell broke loose. (laughs) Then, suddenly, all hell broke loose. He intoned gravely. As his gat rang and the nasty slugs shot out of it one after the next, like incessant torrents of violence aimed at a fucking detail, blah, 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 blah. Use regional dialect patois sparingly, he said in Chicago. (laughs) Avoid detailed descriptions of characters. I love that. Just have them come in. Don't go into great detail describing places and things. Wow, this this looks 19th century literature in the eye and just goes, (laughs) patooey. 
Alan Rob Gray made a career out of explaining every centimeter of a fucking setting, and, and yet he says, don't. Uh, try to leave, and this is, the, this is the greatest thing any writer ever wrote, try to leave out the part that readers tend to skip. <laughs> Elmore is in heaven tonight, he intoned solemnly. <laughs> Elmore's in heaven tonight. The bespectacled comedian who was lightly sweating and, and had been imbibing generously in front of a crowd in Chicago in a theater, a theater that could best be described as a place where the walls were made of glassine and there were black Caneback chair standing beside him in front of a stark black desk reminiscent of a Soviet's fucking office space with a small orange kitten laying on the desk. Said, Elmore Leonard is in heaven tonight. Elmore Leonard's wherever he wants to be tonight. Hopefully the hubcaps just come off the car and they have to make a mad left turn. Um, very briefly, and then we'll start this show. Uh, Chelsea Manning, formerly known as Private Bradley Manning. Yeah. I know Miley made history. But when you're a transgendered private in the United States Army and you're sentenced to 35 years for telling the truth, and then the day after that happens, you go, by the way, I'm Chelsea and I'm getting a sex change while I'm in federal prison. Federal military prison. That is swinging a clit. The size of a sugar cane. He deserves nothing but respect. Glenn Greenwald's boyfriend was uh, uh, detained a couple of weeks ago. You may have seen by the British government, or husband rather. Glenn Greenwald, uh, the journalist who play oh, played who played for the Phillies briefly and then was a, power, was a forward for the Blackhawks initially. He wrote for Salon and now he writes for The Guardian. He lives in Brazil uh, with his uh, husband. Uh, it was detained at Heathrow and, uh, and shook down and all of his computers taken and everything gone through. This is the British government at our behest um, uh, trying to take back every... We're angry at Glenn Greenwald for supporting Bradley Manning and Edward Snowden because he is making what the government does transparent and telling the truth to the public, us, who pay inordinate and exorbitant amount of taxes compared to our income level, compared to those who are rich and wealthy, who run all the giant military industries of the world and want these things kept secret. They are harassing, harassing. Uh, Glenn Greenwald and his husband, Syria. I don't know how to... I, I, I really don't know where to begin. It's such a complex issue, and it, there's no glib way to talk about it. And um, I'll only say this. I listened to Obama today. Uh, we're recording today as of the um, 4th of September. And uh, Obama was on the radio all this morning blathering on. He's in Stockholm, where he talked about... And one of the Swedish reporters got up and said, how do you feel about your Nobel Peace Prize? <laughs> Thank you.
because uh, the drumbeat of war, as we can all feel in our pulse here, it doesn't take anyone. Uh, if you're over the age of 15, you know what this feels like because it hasn't been that long since the drums were beating, right? And we've got a war going on. Um, 367 people killed uh, this month so far in Iraq. Another explosion yesterday. Uh, Afghanistan goes on and on. We haven't solved a goddamn thing. Never mind Egypt, never mind Syria, never mind the Yemen, never mind the predator drones, blah, 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 blah. You know how I feel. War doesn't solve anything. War is not an answer. But humanity says different. Uh, and, and the giant companies say different. In any case, his response, Obama's response to the question, was rather appropriate. He said, I, I'll repeat what I said at the time. I don't deserve this award. No, you don't. And here's why. One, you don't get a Nobel Peace Prize for not being George W. Bush. <laughs> and that's what he got it for. Um, what should we do in Syria? I have this foggiest notion. Um, I will read you this. This is from today's Chicago Tribune, September 4th. Here's a picture of uh, John Kerry, or JFK, or uh, Captain Kerry, as he was known to the crew of the Swift Boat, that he, by the way, commanded nobly and received several decorations for, and I won't have it any other way. John Kerry later took those decorations he received and threw them uh, into, was it the Potomac, or was it the reflecting pool uh, because he was opposed to America's militarism. Now, he is the Secretary of State. <laughs> Kel Irini. Key legislators backstrike. New resolutions floated on Syria military action. Washington. Key lawmakers Tuesday endorsed President Barack Obama's call for a punitive strike on Syria, giving momentum to his drive to win authorization from Congress as it began the most momentous debate on the use of military force since the 2002 run-up to the war in Iraq. Although members of Congress remain deeply split and polls indicate a majority of Americans oppose military action, Obama won the backing of two top House Republicans, Speaker John Boehner and Majority Leader Eric Cantor. That's reason alone to find this suspect. <laughs> U.S. count of Syria's dead outstrips allies. The article subsequent to this, Washington the death toll given by the Obama administration for an alleged Syrian chemical weapons attack is far higher than the confirmed counts of the two key allies and a main activist group which said it was shocked by the U.S. figures. We said 1,429, 426 children. Now we're quibbling at this point. When you're starting to give numbers to everything, I can only remember... Years ago, I was at the Aspen Comedy Festival, which was held by millionaires so that they could go ski. Nothing ever happened of substance at the uh, Aspen Comedy Festival. Millionaires would come and sit there and scoff at you, and the people who lived down Valley were pretty rednecky, and they couldn't understand what you were talking about. <laughs> I was conducting a late-night talk show that started at like 11.45 or midnight, and one night I had on my show... I had a lot of people on the show. I had Larry David, I had Andrew Carey and whatnot. One night I had the greatest fucking talk show I've ever had. It was August Wilson, the playwright, and Jack Black. That was my show. <laughs> So August Wilson came out, and the war had just started, right? This was 2003, 2004, maybe, 2004. And a lot of people who live in Aspen, or down around Aspen, are, you know, shit kickers. And August Wilson, who wrote Fences and won a Pulitzer Prize in seven New York drama circles and was a, a playwright of immense uh, eloquence and... Um, uh, a tremendous humanity. Uh, August Wilson wrote about uh, the Negro Leagues, right? Uh, and August Wilson was uh, a real mensch. And August Wilson goes, 
My five-year-old granddaughter knows that this is a Mickey Mouse war. He was talking about uh, Iraq. And he goes, yesterday it said 76 people were dead in the newspaper. In order that we give their lives meaning, you must count out the dead so that it's not just an oblique number that you read in a newspaper and it washes over you. These are people's lives. And... At one point, uh, someone, a redneck, and they were coked up and fucking high. This was, this is twelve thirty at night in Aspen, right? And, and and if you have two drinks in Aspen, you're like, you know. And the crowd was real coked up and fucked up, and they weren't ready for how real August Wilson was. And he started to talk about the Iraq War, and a guy yelled, um, "Fuck off, Kojak!" because he was bald. And I lost my shit. And I got up and said, hey, you nipple prick, bug fucking smooth lobe monkey brain, piece of fucking protoplasmic shit that crawled out of a buffalo's fucking ass. I go, this man's a fucking artist. Why don't you shut your fucking redneck mouth up for two fucking seconds and you might learn something in your sad and sorry fucking date rapey jizz running down your fucking dad's leg life. So I didn't win the crowd over. And August Wilson brought up the casualty count, and he said, 76 people dead. And then he went, in order to give them meaning, we must count them off. And he went, one, two, three, like a dramaturge, which he was. By the time he got to 15, people were rioting. By the time he got to 20, people were screaming. People were booing, stamping. By the time he got to 30, the crowd turned. By the time he got to 40, people were cheering. And by the time he finished, the whole crowd was chanting along with him. And it was 74, 75. And I really feel like that. This number that the American government concocted to lead us into this expedition in Syria is not just a number. We're talking about Syrian people that are dead. Know this about Syria. Like Iraq... And like Libya, well-educated countries in the Islamic world, from our point of view, more educated than, say, the Yemen or some of the Gulf states. Thank you. Um, A little less venal than Saudi Arabia, who is our closest ally in the Gulf and is desperate for us to attack Syria because it protects their interests. If you're protecting the Saudis' interests, you are not protecting the interests of you and I, ladies and gentlemen, in my estimation. Now, it's about time we stopped thinking about the Saudis' interests and about time we started thinking about humanity. If we were going to intervene in Syria, two and a half years ago I was at the Montreal Comedy Festival when this conflagration started. Now, Syria is literally split into three separate nations. There are maybe almost a couple of million refugees who are living outside of Syria now. Imagine if the United States was torn by a giant civil war and there were millions of people living in Mexico and Canada that couldn't live here anymore. What the Arab world would view us as. Um, An opportunity. And that's what we view the Middle East as. This shit that happened in Egypt was a coup, a military coup. Morsi, the president of Egypt, for better or worse, was elected. And the army took back that from him and wiped out thousands of people entire square, the, same, the very same square. Now, you can argue all the fine points of everything, and I don't claim to be an expert on any of this because it's extraordinarily complex. We are no longer bound by our own conventions and laws to give Egypt money anymore if we don't want to. And by the way, 
Egypt receives more aid than many of the states in the United States do. Way more. Oh, yeah, they fucking do. And this whole rush to war with Syria, because of a, a, an enormous atrocity committed against children and women and, 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 and civilians in Syria, I appreciate the magnitude of the atrocity committed. It was the same kind of atrocity that Saddam Hussein had committed against the Kurds that we used as the run-up to war to Iraq. I will say this. Should we react to atrocities like this? Yes, obviously. We're supposed to be the world's policemen. We're supposed to be humans. However, our moral high ground isn't quite as high as you might think it is. When we use predator drones, and yes, as I said before, we used Agent Orange on not only our own people, but the people of many other countries. And we have used chemical weapons in violation of many treaties throughout time. Uranium-tipped weaponry in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, and I have been to medical hospitals in Washington, D.C., and met many people with leukemia who were veterans of the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. They didn't get leukemia because they got leukemia. They got leukemia because we're using irradiated weapons in those... Fuck? In Tuskegee, precisely. They, they, the amount of atrocities that America commits on a daily basis can't even be measured. Now, the amount of atrocities that uh, Assad has committed, heinous beyond all fucking measure. If we had wanted to deal with this, we should have dealt with it once upon a time and not waited till now and then go all of a sudden there's a red line drawn. Having said that, what should we do now? I don't know. I do know this. War profiteers profit from war. And when I say war profiteers, I mean General Dynamics, General Electric, uh, all the oil companies, Halliburton, companies like that. that that's who profits from war. We do not profit from war. We will never see the money from these wars. The people of Syria will not profit from this. And anyway, discord in the Middle East is to our advantage as a country, as a sovereign nation right now, as it is for China and Russia. You may have noticed that Russia and China are sending boats all of a sudden. All of a sudden, Russia is sending boats. This is the first time since, what, the late 80s when Russia sent a fucking boat to defy us uh, in a sense like this. So what should be done, Greg? I'm not certain. I know I would do this were I a world leader. Negotiate. It's called sending emissaries and getting them over. If that can't be done, how about some assassination? Uh, instead of dropping more fucking bombs on the same people who've been bombed a million times, why not assassinate the cocksuckers who we think perpetrated this? And by the way... We don't know who perpetrated this. We think it's the government who did this, but we don't know that it's the government did, that did this because we created this scenario. Um, British intelligence organization said last week they believe 350 people have been killed. French said 281. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, generally regarded as one of the most reliable sources of information on casualty figures in Syria, said it's confirmed 502, including 80 children. Rami Abdul Rahman, a Syrian expatriate, who runs the organization from Coventry, England, said he was shocked by the White House's body count. Abdul Rahman said some Syrian opposition groups disseminate propaganda and exaggerate death tolls to sway U.S. politicians. The casualty estimate is important because the administration is resting its case for military action in part on the scale of the attack. So don't believe what you read and don't believe what you hear. But he's the president. Surely he wouldn't lie to us. I believe we mentioned Nixon earlier. <laughs> Presidents are in the business of lying to us. That's how they maintain their presidency. 
Um, is he doing anything other presidents haven't done? No. Does that expatiate him? No. Did he earn a Nobel Prize? Whatevs. <laughs> the United States debated whether to strike at Syria. The United Nations said Tuesday the number of Syrians who fled their homeland was exceeded 2 million, a figure rising daily as the civil war in that country continues to rage. Syria has become a great tragedy of this century, Antonio Guterres, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, said in a statement. More than half of the refugees are children, the UN said. This is the world's governments playing their game for their own ends. When half of the two million people are children, that's an untold uh, tragedy on a scale of human fucking a mortification that's indescribable and difficult for us to understand in this comedy club sitting here tonight trying to have a good time, and believe me, I am as well. Uh, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I would always say war, extra war isn't the answer to war. And if we start bombing them and if we start sending troops, um, remember what destroyed the economy of this country, aside from the fact that the banks and the mortgage companies and the oil companies and all the people who run the financial institutions of this country cabaled to ruin us. The thing that mainly destroyed the United States was the intense money funnel that was Iraq and Afghanistan. That's what sent this country spiraling over the fucking edge. If you want this to go... The good news is... Uh, we can voice our opinion on this. The president has had to listen to the United States. Remember last week, we're going to bomb, and then all of a sudden, we're going to talk about it. (laughs) That's us. That's us. That's our influence. Uh, The bad news is, I believe the Middle East is a shitstorm eternally for the next 25 years, because uh, it's going to take that long to settle down. I don't know that I'll live to see it settled. Uh, in any case, that's what I have to say about Syria. Moving on. The NFL season is about to start. The, the preseason... <laughs> the preseason has started already. Yes, the Bears. The Bears. Uh, 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 as I've discussed, uh, last season was extraordinary for me. My, my 49ers went all the way to the Super Bowl where they deserved to be roundly beaten. Uh, but, <laughs> by a team that I detest beyond all measure. And congratulations again to the Ravens. Uh, Our coaching was shitty, and there was that weird gangster part of the show, and we've discussed this a thousand times. This settlement came down this week, August 29th. This is from Eric Edholm on Yahoo. 4,500 former players who are suing the league for damage say they incurred because of head trauma in the game during their professional careers. U.S. District Judge Anita Brody announced the settlement, which still must be approved later. She originally planned to rule on the case, da-da-da. The plaintiffs included Hall of Famer's Tony Dorsett, the family of deceased Junior Shao, who you may remember uh, committed suicide last year during the middle of the football season. The worst season, if you want my opinion, in the history of the National Football League. Between the uh, referee strike that the owners refused to adjudicate on, that their owners refused to cough up the few paltry fucking dollars that it cost uh, all those players who were getting hurt uh, during that, and then uh, the hideousness of the bounty. Uh, uh, um, uh, we knew players were taking hits for bounties and hitting guys hard for bounties. We knew Junior Shao killed himself. There was the other. It was a terrible season uh, for tragedy. Uh, the settlement applies to all retired players, whether or not they were part of the suit. Uh, capped at $75 million, a separate fund of $675 million, blah, blah, blah. It's a lot of numbers. The headline for this article said a whopping payout, and I was extremely angry with that because it's not a whopping payout. $765 million to the owners of the NFL is fucking pocket change. Pocket fucking change. 
But the article got better. Uh, SportsIllustrated.com's uh, Peter King reported the legal fees will be paid out separately. So it could raise the total to nearly $1 billion. These are people they plucked from college, gave professional athlete jobs to, asked them to put their bodies on the line, and then they all received fucking punishing concussions. The phone rings all the time in a lot of these guys' houses. They pick up a toothbrush and they stick it in their ear and shit like that. There's children have to call them at night to keep them awake and shit. We're talking about grave brain injuries here. The NFL has done fuck nothing to help them or give them any... They did this, you might have noticed, before the preseason started so that this story wouldn't be a story during the season. But I wanted to read you these two paragraphs and then we'll go to the next one. The early takes, the monetary total appears startling on the surface and it makes you wonder how much more it might have been had this gone to trial. But it's not the bank-breaking some, some legal analysts predicted. And it is certainly not a figure that will bankrupt the National Football League which has been a wash in profits for years, and I want you to hear this number, and I hate numbers because they are boring. <laughs> but you need to know, because they gave them $765 million. The NFL brings in somewhere on the order of $10 billion a year. So before you start rooting for the Bears this season, and all the ugly, icky, rapey white guys in their luxury boxes that own these fucking teams... <laughs> Spare a thought for the fucking players who have short careers and put their lives on the fucking line for a moment of glory in a garland. As uh, Patton says at the end of the movie, for a thousand years, Roman generals were given a triumph when they got home. They rode in a chariot and a slave stood behind them with a golden wreath holding it over their head and whispering in their ear this warning, all glory is fleeting. Um, the NFL gladly will pay the price steep as it is, not only to save money in the long run with countless billable hours liable to have been tacked on. That's an interesting point. But to also avoid a prolonged ugly trial that would serve as PR nightmare for Roger Goodell in the league. And that's why they did it. That's why they did it now. Um, one can look at this two ways. One, the NFL paid a steep price to settle, but you could also say they got off somewhat easily too. Without having to admit that the violent collisions of the game were the reasons that former players are suffering from post-concussion health problems. Figure out the average settlement per plaintiff, because there's over 4,000 plaintiffs, comes out somewhere in the neighborhood of $170,000. And, and yet we love it. I like football. When the Niners were in the Super Bowl, I was excited beyond measure. At the end of the game, I was standing six inches from the screen screaming. <laughs> But I do feel that the NFL owners are liable for a great deal more than they're held to account to, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Couple quickies and then we'll move on. I want to do questions, but we'll see. Uh, let's see here. Um, a couple of ads before we get going here. I'd like to break up the tragedy with some commercialism. <laughs> There's still a couple of power she's available. I don't think we have any kittens at the moment, but we have Smartest Man in the World t-shirts if you go to gregcreeps.com. I also made a stand-up special that'll be on Chill Video if you go to chill.com. It's going to come out in October. It's called Greg Proops Live at Musso and Frank's. I did it at a steakhouse in Los Angeles. We talk a little about... We quote Faulkner in it and uh, Bukowski and Raymond Chandler. Uh, Raymond Chandler said, if my novels were any better, I should not... What, what was it? If my novels were any... Any worse, I should not have been asked to come to Hollywood. If they'd been any better, I should not have come. 
and uh, I hope you. I, it's four ninety nine when it comes out. Hopefully, it'll come out. Uh, I think early October. And uh, I thank you for that. Uh, if you want to write me, fan mail for greg at gmail.com. If you want to ask me a question, smartest at a special thing.com. You haven't done questions in a million years, but we will. Uh, two nights from now, on Friday night, I'll be at the Howlin' Wolf in New Orleans. On 9-11, I'll be in Denver uh, at the uh, Comedy Works and uh, downtown in Larimer Square. The 16th uh, of, of September, I will be back in Los Angeles at the Cine Family, where we'll be showing the movie for the Greg Proops Film Club, Sexy Beast from the year 2000. <laughs> With Ben Kingsley, uh, which is a superb British gangster film. It really, really is. I love her with all my heart. Nine eighteen on the 18th of uh, November will be at Barbara Lubitsch. That show's free. I know you paid 20 bucks to get in tonight, but if you come to L.A., you can see the show for fucking free. Uh, on the 19th, we'll be in Vancouver at the Fan Club. Uh, on the 6th of uh, October, we'll be at the Comedy Bar in Toronto. On the 8th, we'll be at the Underground in Toronto, which is a dope bar. In Toronto. I didn't even know Ontario had dope, but it's going to be good. Uh, the 16th of October will be at Bar Lubitsch uh, again. Uh, on the 14th of November, we'll be in Calgary, uh, Canada, at the Laugh Stop. Uh, we'll be there all week doing stand up as well. On the uh, 30th of November, we'll be back in Brooklyn. Uh, for our friends in New York City at the Bell House. Uh, I'm playing on the road with Ryan Stiles, uh, Jeff Davis, and uh, Joel Murray, right here from Chicago. Uh, and we're going to be on the road uh, this month and next month in Victoria, Kelowna, Lethbridge, Medicine Hat, Edmonton, Calgary, Kingston, Bellingham, Washington, uh, Hamilton, Ontario, London, Ontario, Niagara Falls, uh, and then back in uh, Washington State in Anacortes, or as I like to call it, Anal Cortez. <laughs> And a city I can't read the fucking name that I wrote there. And then Bellingham. We'll be back in Washington State then. So come and visit us. If you want to see us, do the improv and shit like that. And now, on to the main event tonight, which I feel is the 50th anniversary of uh, Martin Luther King's uh, I Have a Dream speech, which took place August 28, 1963. As I pointed out earlier, I have a Time magazine here, which is a very excellent issue of Time magazine. It has a very long article about uh, John Lewis, who's still alive. There's a picture of Dr. King in the middle of a crowd. There's a picture of Charlton Heston coming off a plane with Paul Newman and Harry Belafonte. There's, yeah, it's really good. There's a picture of Joan Baez in her little miniskirt with her guitar singing We Shall Overcome and stuff. Uh, it's really good. Uh, uh, all the buttons people wore on the day, equal rights in 63. Emancipation March, August 28, 63. And, by the way, the march was for jobs. It wasn't all about emancipation. It was for jobs as well. Um, this is 2013, the 50th anniversary of that march. It is also the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And to give you some idea of the weird concurrence of American history, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, the amazing uh, writer uh, on black history, and also died the day of that march. So how about that? Uh, if you... Um, Oh, my God. There's a guitar played by Baez, a pocket watch given to the event, Bayard Rustin, by, by Martin Luther King. So they wanted to have the march. Um, I want to give you a little background, and then we're going to go into this. Um, JFK was mortified that the Negroes were going to riot. And he called them all in, and he had Dr. King in, and he had uh, John Lewis in, and he had 
uh, 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 all, all, the head of the NAACP, Ed Wilkins, everybody came in. And he was like, look, what's going to happen? They were terrified. Because as you know, in 1963, for some background on this, there had been mad riots in the South, particularly in Mississippi. The bombing happened in between uh, uh, at the church. Uh, there had been um, uh, people being hosed down. We were watching on American TV. American people were watching uh, children and women being attacked by dogs and clubbed by policemen and shit like that. By, by the way, Democratic governors, this is before the big giant switch of 68 when the South was largely Democratic still because, as you know, Republicans were the party of abolition. And that's how long that fucking carried on. Then after Wallace and, Dem- and Nixon and the, and the giant seismic shift in 68, now we have, um, you know, the Democratic Party, which is sort of everyone, and then the Republican Party, which is billionaires, weirdos, rednecks, gun toters, people who wear tea bags on their hat, and people who wear tinfoil on their fucking hat and think Obama is from Kenya and is a Muslim, okay? People who believe that the Second Amendment is the most important amendment. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, and I'm not blaming all Republicans. I have Republican friends. And if you're listening, my Republican friends, I heart you. <laughs> know this. This is from the paper the other day. From a, 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 a website called Roll Call, which is a political website. This is Geo Pierce. Boehner Cantor turned on Chance to Speak by Emma Dumain. August 28th. Speaker John Boehner and Majority Leader Eric Cantor, you may remember their names from earlier when I read them from the Chicago Tribune in so much as they're supporting Obama's march to war against Syria. The House's two most senior Republicans were invited to speak at the 50th anniversary of the historic march on Washington, but declined. Uh, There was a giant uh, anniversary celebration. You may have seen it last week. It was on C-SPAN. Bill Clinton spoke. Uh, James Earl Carter spoke, uh, Barack Obama spoke, um, all of King's family spoke, his sons and his daughter. Uh, Martin Luther King's sister spoke and said the brilliant line, I'm the only one here at this event who knew him as a baby. Uh, Yeah. And it was quite moving and very good. They invited every Republican of note, and I'm not kidding, every Republican of note. I'm talking about Jeb Bush they invited and shit. Every, here, I'll read it to you. Um, Julian Bond, a renowned civil rights activist, said with MSNBC, what's really telling is the podium behind me. Just count at the end of the day how many Republicans will be there. They asked senior President Bush to come, George Herbert Walker. He was ill. They asked Junior Bush. He said he had to stay with his father. They asked a long list of Republicans to come, and to a man and woman, they said no. And that they would turn their backs on this event was telling of them and the fact that they seem to want to get black votes. And Julian Bond said, they're not going to get them this way. (laughs) I would expand that. Black votes, to be sure, indubitably. How about humanity's votes? How about that the gains that Dr. King and Malcolm X and all of the civil rights activists who march, Rosa Parks, anyone you can think of that put their life on the line, Julian Bond, Andrew Young, um, that they, what, what they enacted and what they got through and that what Lyndon Baines Johnson took pains to pass through and force Congress to pass through, and believe me, he forced Congress <laughs> to pass these things, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the Miranda decision, that all of us have benefited Uh, benefited from them, not just black people, uh, all of us, because we're all one country. 
Black people are not a separate part of the country. They built this country. They built the White House. They built New York City. When you're in bondage and servitude for 400 years, certainly a hearing is what you deserve at the very least. Never mind equality, right? And that all of these Republicans in the year 2013 overlooked the significance of this event. In fact, looked at the significance of this event and decided to play to the rodeo clown with the Obama outfit on. In my opinion, they, they took the profundity um, of the event. They took the unbelievable resonance of what Dr. King had to say on the day and, and what has happened subsequently and spit in the face of it by maintaining that position that's so narrowly defined that I like war and I like guns and I like suppressing people. And that I believe that the corporations are best and that I believe that we shouldn't make independent decisions on our own. And that civil rights are not important rights. That only the right to bear arms is the most important civil right. The other ones are adjunct to that and ancillary to that and irrelevant to that. That a woman's right to do what she wants with her body is irrelevant. That a gay person's right to do what they want is irrelevant. That an Asian or a Buddhist or a Muslim or whatever... If you have listened to the speeches of Dr. King, you will note time and time again that he is against militarism and social and economic injustice. And these are his constant themes. He doesn't merely talk about rights for black people, which is the, the, the thrust and the presupposition, but that the nonviolent demands that we make of the government that they recognize all of our right to be human beings and have our own independent agency within a giant fucking system are imperative. And that John Boehner and Eric Cantor turning down the invitation to come and sit on the stand with them. I watched it. I watched it on C-SPAN. Oprah sat with all the presidents and the King family sat on the other side and then they all got up and sang at the end. And then there was this weird tableau where... Uh, Obama and Michelle walked to the top of the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and they were followed by Clinton and Carter and then they all stood there underneath Lincoln's shadow, the great emancipator, right? Um, the fact that they declined that speaks enormous volumes about where they're coming from. I mean, it's a mindset, is it not? It's a philosophy, is it not? It's a fucking group of ideals and values. As Seamus Haney said... Our values, right? The idea that poetry is values, that we have something inside us that wants to speak to the other people. Do you not want to clasp hands with your brothers and sisters all around this country and say that all of our goals are similar and attainable? That we want three square meals a day and the right to face a justice system that isn't unfair? That we don't want inequity and that we don't want war? That we want our children to frolic freely in the fucking sun and that we want a chance for fucking fun and, and life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness? You want to shit on that? Cantor was asked 12 days ago to participate. I have a dream speech. The Virginia Republican is currently traveling in North Dakota and Ohio. Two states I mentioned earlier, you may recall. Because the governors of those states are enacting hideous legislation against the will of the people, touring energy sites with Representative Kevin Kramer of North Dakota and participating in non-official events. That's wildly important in light of this anniversary. 
Kander's decision to turn down the invitation is especially striking. Given his stated commitments to passing a rewrite of the Voting Rights Act in the 113th Congress and the many opportunities he has taken over the past several weeks to publicly reflect on the experience of traveling with Representative John Lewis, Democrat, Georgia, to Selma, Alabama. The leader hopes it's an outstanding event fitting with the incredible legacy of Dr. King, blah, 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 blah. Um, They asked people to come and none of them come. Uh, they asked Herbert Walker to come. He was sick. They asked W to come. He said, I got to stay with my daddy. They asked Jeb to come. He wouldn't come either. They asked every Republican of note in this country to come and none of them came. There were no Republicans on the stand that day to celebrate the 50th anniversary of this speech. That's sad. Sad. I could say it was shocking and that it's an indictment of everything they believe in and that that's the big schism of this country and that that's the inextricable divide that we cannot reach over. But I'm not. I'm just going to say it's sad and that they, as well as us, need to reflect on our, on our fellow Americans. I was going to say adversaries, but I don't like that word. On the people who cross the aisle whom we disagree with and try to understand why they're doing this. And try to understand um, whatever hideous motivation. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sean, will you play a little of it? A lot of us talk about it and a lot of us have heard about it, but I want you to hear a minute or two of it. Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self evident. Thomas Jefferson wrote this, who owned slaves. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. Amen. It's an extraordinary moment in American history. After the speech, a lot of them were invited back to the White House, and JFK went, you were marvelous, you were marvelous, you were marvelous, and turned to Dr. King and went, and you had a dream. (laughs) He watched it on TV with Bobby. They were too afraid to go. They didn't participate. Only one woman spoke. It was pretty sexist. Josephine Baker, thank you. That's what I'm about to get to here. Uh, A. Philip Randolph... And Bayard Rustin. Now, A. Philip Randolph was head of the uh, International Association of Pullman Porters, which was the largest black union in the country. They'd, I want to give you a little background about this speech here. Um, and then we'll go into this. Um, 22 years prior to the 63 speech, A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin planned a march on Washington, demanding the end of segregation in the war industry, which was building up ferociously in early 41. Randolph, who was a socialist, uh, called for 10,000 to come. 
the March on Washington prompted Ro- Ro- Franklin Roosevelt to issue Executive Order 8802, which established the Im- Fair Employment Practice Committee on June 25th, six days before the demonstration. So they called it off. Rosa Parks. Now, by the way, A. Philip Randolph was at uh, the I Have a Dream uh, march in 1963. There were other ideas about calling for marches. During the 40s, none ever materialized. On May 1757, the prayer pilgrimage for freedom was organized by Randolph and Rustin, supported by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, headed by Dr. King. At the Lincoln Memorial Gathering, featured speakers included Adam Clayton Powell, Jr., uh, Roy Wilkins, the head of the NAACP, gospel recording artist and civil rights movement supporter Mahalia Jackson performed, blah, blah, blah. Moving on. Uh, um, the spring and summer of 63 were critical in the introduction by President John F. Kennedy of yet another civil rights bill of that year, one they considered quite watered down and not sufficient in any way. It took his assassination and the bombing in Birmingham for this country to turn and for L- Lyndon Baines Johnson to have the temerity and courage and fucking generosity of heart to reach out and finally allow everyone to have civil rights um, and, and force Congress to vote for it. Other key speakers included SNCC Chairman, Chairperson John Lewis, who's still a congressperson, who spoke the other day, by the way. In good conscience, we cannot support wholeheartedly the administration's civil rights bill, for it is too little and too late. There's not one thing in that bill that will protect our people from police brutality. Um, Women played a leading role in the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Rosa Parks' arrest on December 1, 55, for violating the segregation laws of Alabama, set off the Montgomery bus boycott, and helped make Martin Luther King a national figure in so much as he went down there and participated in that. Um, Without the organizing work of the Women's Political Caucus in Montgomery, which printed the leaflets and circulated them, telling people to refrain from riding the city buses, the boycott would have never been successful. Ella Baker... A longtime organizer in the civil rights struggle was the first executive director of the SCLC. By 63, women were playing leading roles in Cambridge, Maryland, Somerville, Tennessee. The actual March on Washington, one woman spoke. Mahalia Jackson, Marian Anderson, Jen Baez, and others performed. While Martin Luther King was giving the speech, before he got to the I Have a Dream part, Mahalia Jackson had sang a song. She was sitting behind him, and he was going on and on reading his speech. And she went, tell him about the dream, Martin. And that's when he jumped into the I'll Have a Dream part. It was Mahalia Jackson who urged him. (laughs) Dr. Dorothy Height of the National Council of Negro Women in New York was on hand, but not allowed to address the crowd. Mahalia Jackson encouraged uh, uh, King during his prepared speech to veer away and shouted, tell them about your dream, Martin. The only woman who spoke during the rally was film star and stage performer Josephine Baker, who flew in from her adopted home of France to participate. Baker's tenure in France largely resulted from the racial discrimination facing African-American artists in the 20s and 30s. Now, she fucked off to Paris, where she became a huge star and made films and was a star of stage and screen in Paris and adopted an enormous family like Mia Farrow and had a, a multiracial... Rainbow in, what? A rainbow tribe. A rainbow tribe is exactly what she called it. <laughs> Josephine Baker is an enormous figure uh, in the history of this country and largely unsung in this time. She wore... Uh, and I don't think there's a picture of it in here, but I saw another picture of her on the web. She wore uh, a uniform to the march, whereas almost everyone wore a suit and tie that had all her croix de guerre and everything she was given by the French government because she was respected as a person in France. I'm going to read you some quotes that she said. This is what Josephine Baker said in part. I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more. But I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee, and that made me mad. I need you to understand this, uh, Proofcast listeners and vodcasters all around the world. 
I'm 53. I was three when this speech was given. So this is an ancient history, although I know you think I'm ancient and barely creaking in like a triceratops rolling out of Jurassic Park. As Louis C.K. said, when you see a black person with gray in their hair, they weren't allowed to eat at the same lunch counter. They weren't allowed to drink at the same water fountain. This isn't a million years ago. This is in our lifetime. And when I say in our lifetime, I mean in the lifetime of Dick Cheney and John Boehner and George W. Bush and shit like that is what I mean in the lifetime of. Never mind Julian Bond and Jimmy Carter and stuff. They know what I'm talking about. And I want you to understand that. Um... When I get mad, you know, I open my big mouth. And then they look out because when Josephine opens her mouth, they hear it all over the world. I'm not a young woman now, friends. By the way, she was in her 50s. <laughs> but you know how women are. They crazy. <laughs> my life is behind me. There's not too much fire burning inside me. And before it goes out, I want you to use what is left to light the fire in you. After the demonstration, stay, after the demonstration, Josephine Baker wrote to Dr. King saying, I was so happy to have been united with all of you on our great historical day. I repeat that you are really a great, great leader. And if you need me, I will always be at your disposition because we have come a long way, but still have a long way to go. Your great admirer and sister in battle. W.E.B. Dubois died on the same day the march in Washington took place. His death was announced at the rally, as well as an acknowledgement of his shift to the left in his later decades. Dubois spanned the political spectrum from civil rights and pan-Africanism to world communism. W.E.B. Dubois is someone you need to read uh, if you have not read him. So what is the legacy of all of this and what does it mean, Greg? Well, the Voting Rights Act was just... um, eviscerated by the John Roberts court. And John Roberts actually said, and I'm paraphrasing, um, in this post-racial world, we don't need it anymore, blah, 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 blah. Immediately, North Carolina enacted a voter ID legislation. Immediately, a bunch of states leapt in to keep black people from voting. Now, I was on a a little left-wing interweb show last year, and a Republican woman said to me, why do we need voter ID? Now, my, my mother, who passed away this year, was 94 years old. And she said, well, why shouldn't people have to show IDs when they go to vote? And I said, my mother's 94. She's been voting since the 1930s. She doesn't have a driver's license. She's been paying taxes into the system for 70-something years. You really want to require her to show her ID when she votes. That's necessary for you to run a democracy, is it? And she went... And got all quiet and shit. And that's the only thing people understand at the end of the day is not logic, but an emotional plea. When I said I had a 94-year-old mother who lived in, Mrs., uh, in Texas and didn't she deserve to vote and not have to show an ID, then you get the idea. But shouldn't everyone have to show an ID when they have to vote because they're on the fucking day? No. By the way, ladies and gentlemen... Not everyone has a telephone in this country that they carry around with them in their pocket. And not everyone has a computer. Because 25% of the population lives in fucking poverty. And they don't have IDs. And they don't have a bank account. They have to go to a check cashing place to cash their fucking checks if they get one, if they're lucky enough to... Fucking A. And they live in mad debt. And... Those people don't have IDs. College students who move to towns in North Carolina, and by the way, North Carolina has loads of colleges, cannot use their college ID to vote anymore in the state of North Carolina. Was this made to protect all of our voting rights? No. 
It was made to exclude people from being able to vote. It was made to extrude black people, women, the elderly, and students from being able to vote. That is not democracy. That is not democracy. That's not democracy. And that is what... uh, The the, the black population in prison in this country is absolutely fucking ghastly and shocking and has never been as high as it is now. 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 I'm not talking about 100 years ago. Uh, Since slavery, there hasn't been this many black people incarcerated. And so the promise of his speech is something we all hold in our hearts. The... The idea of Obama is a glorious idea. The reality is much different, and that's what we have to face. And when no Republican will go to stand on the stand and take part in this, and when no one will hold hands, when we're all just going to stand across the divide and spit at each other, it's not going to fucking happen. And that's why I urge you to take part in democracy as much as you bloody well can. A couple of quotes. We're not going to have time for questions. And then we're going <laughs> to... Maybe a couple. Sean, do you have the mic? We'll do a couple, couple quotes and then we're going to do this. I wanted to talk very quickly. Uh, 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 this started last week. A day of protests and organizers uh, that was in 50 cities, including Chicago, and a thousand stores across the country. Uh, the fast food workers of this nation need a raise. And they need to have the minimum wage raised in this country. There's a thing called wage slavery, and that means when you make so little for the wage that you earn that you can't possibly earn a living off of it, and you get no health care, and you get no uh, uh, and any other benefits from it. Um, these aren't the union leaders who were organizing for better wages or men who lost their jobs to sweatshop later in Bangladesh. They aren't even the engineers who've been put out... Uh, to rust by robot-run assembly lines. They don't really number among the 20 million who are estimated to be unemployed or underemployed. These three names popped up, you know. This is an article about millionaires here. The fast food industry used to employ younger people. Now workers are older and depend on the work to feed families. The minimum wage workers is now 35 and 88% are 20 and older. This is an article about millionaires from The Guardian. Spare a thought this Labor Day holiday when you fire up the barbecue. For the workers in this country, for some of the notable men who have lost their jobs over the past 20 years, Richard Fold, Dennis Kozlowski, and Eckhard Pfeiffer. (laughs) This is a review of Bailed Out, Booted, and Busted, a study released by the Institute of Policy Studies of the 241 people who have ranked as the highest paid CEOs in the United States in the past two decades. 38% of these titans of finance have been kicked out of their jobs, put in jail, or have had their companies rescued from bankruptcy. (laughs) Fold, Kozlowski, and Pfeiffer are three in that top of the list. Fold raked in $466 million in salary and stocks in seven years of CEO of Lehman Brothers, the Wall Street investment bank before the company collapsed in 2008. He's one of 112 CEOs whose companies were given a total of $258 billion in taxpayer bailouts. Kozlowski ran ran Tyco, and uh, he joined, uh, let's see... Found guilty of systematically looting the company in 2005, he was sent to jail and is now serving time in a minimum security facility near Central Park. Funny how Chelsea Manning is in a maximum security federal army jail and that the head of Tyco is in a minimum security jail. 18 other top paid CEOs in the past 20 years have led companies that were busted and ordered to pay more than $100 million each in fraud-related fines. Pfeiffer ran Compact from 92 to 99 and was fired when his company lost business. 
Like 27 other CEOs on the list, he gave himself a golden parachute. He walked away with $416 million. So when you see people protesting in front of Burger King or Wendy's or McDonald's, understand that the minimum wage in this country is lower than any other industrialized country and that the disparity between rich and poor in this country is shocking and that these, if you'll pardon the expression, cocksuckers... Shouldn't we be asking companies' boards of directors to tighten the rules? This is from The Guardian. Not an American paper. This is from The Guardian. To make sure they don't fail... One of the simplest reforms that shareholder activists have lobbied for is a report by companies comparing CEO compensation to that of their worst paid workers. This was mandated by the Dodd-Frank legislation, but companies have fought tooth and nail against this being implemented. Corporate America has been backed up by business school pundits who say that CEO compensation is not a matter that government should regulate. So that's not a matter that government should regulate. Guns are not a matter that government should regulate. But the minimum wage and whether women should be able to get abortions and who should vote are something the government should regulate. Now you understand what I'm talking about. Let's do a couple of questions and there you are. Uh, well, I wanted to read you this sentence because I wrote... <laughs> Executive con- boards have to consider how much they pay will have an impact. And this is from a, 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 a person who writes... David Larker, the director of the Corporate Governance Research Program at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. So you can see where he's coming from. And this is what he said in 2011. Boards have to consider how much they'll pay will have an impact on the types of people who want to take the CEO position. You don't want to drive talented CEOs out of public companies so they can avoid scrutiny over how much they are paid. And the note I wrote here on the piece of paper is, are you fucking kidding me? Who gives a shit whether they're driven out? They're venal, blood-sucking vampires who are destroying the fiber of this country. Destroying the fiber of this country. Uh, no, it's not important at all that CEOs are compensated in a grand and ma- a huge way. Not at all important in any way. I don't care if the CEOs of all the giant corporations receive hundreds of millions of dollars in giant packages and have stock options. It's not important. What's important is that everyone might eat uh, during the day. If these people were taxed properly, if the Dodd-Frank Amendment was implemented, if the government did anything about that, instead of talking about waging a fucking expensive-ass war against Syria, that would be equity. Uh, And what Martin Luther King talked about almost incessantly. A couple of questions, and then we're going to fuck off. We've hit the two-hour mark here, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Where are you, Sean? Yes, sir. What's your name? Uh, Ethan. Hi, Ethan. Uh, Well, I just wanted to say that I love your love of poetry and your continued uh, reading of it. Thank you, brother. And uh, I was curious. um, I also adored your threnody for Seamus Haney and all that. Is there a certain poem or poet that speaks to you more than any other on a deeper level, maybe? I I couldn't say uh, off the top of my head. I always like William Blake uh, because I, I think, yeah. Um, but there's so many, uh, so many exquisite poets. I mean, as much as I can enjoy William Blake, uh, I, I love Bukowski and, and uh, for goodness sakes, uh, uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, for that matter. I mean, uh, there, I, I just feel like 
what did Aristotle say? Uh, it's important that we teach music to our young. Uh, and, and I think music is poetry, and, and poetry is music. Uh, um, I, I hope that answer is not too oblique and, and fending you off. I, I, I don't have one off the top of my head. If I was little, I would have said uh, Edward Lear or uh, 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 Lewis Carroll. Because the further it is from England, the closer it is than fr- to, what is it? To closer it is to France. Will you? Won't you? Won't you? Will you? Won't you join the dance? Um, those were the poems I remember when I was little, and Ogden Nash and shit like that. Uh, the buses going to Scranton always travel in pairs. Uh, so when I was little, you were we were given a lot more poetry. Uh, we were given Robert Louis Stevenson's Garden of Verse and stuff like that. Charles Garden of Verse. Uh, a year, or a year and a half ago, I read Carl Sandburg's Chicago uh, to a crowd here in Chicago. And I realized that hardly anyone in the crowd had heard the poem. But it was one of the first poems I remember reading in grade school because we were always given Sandburg. Um, and, and so there you are. Uh, does, that, does that answer your question? I mean, you can go back and say Ovid or, you know, because Ovid's filthy. Uh, <laughs> And then there's the other Roman poets where, you know, or or Homer, for that fucking matter. Isn't Homer the first great author? I mean, doesn't everything go back to fucking Homer? And Homer clearly stole all those stories (laughs) from previous poets and stuff like that. Uh, And we don't believe in all the things of that. But, I mean, is not the speeches of Martin Luther King, uh, or are not, rather, uh, the speeches of Martin Luther King uh, poetry in their own way? Um, I noticed when Obama got up to speak at the Martin Luther King um, speech, 50th anniversary memorial that uh, he was a little more preachery in his delivery because the, 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 the moment required it. Um, the thing about Martin Luther King's speeches are not only are they incandescently written and brilliantly constructed, they're, um, they're delivered with the passion of a preacher and, th- and that's what carries the day emotionally. I've seen Jesse Jackson speak, I've seen Bill Clinton speak, I've seen Geraldine Ferraro speak, I've seen Republican speakers speak as well. <laughs> and I guarantee you the one that gets the closest to uh, the heavens is the one who carries the fucking day. Uh, and I think that's what, uh, that's what poetry is about. That was a long-winded question that ended with me sucking the last few words under my breath. <laughs> I apologize for that. And I say, uh, yeah, no, I don't have a favorite poet. And I... <laughs> Later when the World Series starts, I'm going to read Lawrence Ferlinghetti's uh, um, uh, baseball uh, poem, which is about the Giants in the early 60s, but it's great. And the opening sentence goes, uh, or the opening stanza is, um, uh, sitting in the grandstand eating popcorn, reading Ezra Pound. <laughs> and then what is it? Uh, something like Willie Mays runs home. Uh, uh, like a runner from Thebes. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, who else here? A couple more in the room. How about I this have... young man in the front row? He's been quite patient. Where are you, Sean? Jesus Christ. Oh, you're in the back. All right, that young man. I have one for you, sir. Go on. Uh, it's going to be a much lighter question for you. Hooray! Uh, <laughs> aside from Dog Day Afternoon, what would be your favorite pop culture movie involving drag? And I have three involving... of Involving drag? Drag queens? Involving drag queens? I have three of my favorites, if you like. What an interesting uh, question. Now, I, was I, d- I haven't given it a lot of thought, and well, I'm not going to say Victor- Victor Victoria. Well, between, say, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the Bird Well, and I adore Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and I also did not hate Wong Fu. Uh, that was uh, the third one. I think Wesley Snipes and Patrick Swayze in Wong Fu are getting it fucking done. Oh, no. 
You need your princess points. And Guy Pierce and uh, a Ter- Terrence Stamp and Priscilla, Queen of the Dead. Bob, you really know how to treat a lady. <laughs> I think there's a, a lot of fabulous drag queen movies. If you want to go back, there's a, a movie called Next Stop Greenwich Village by Paul Mazursky. That's, uh, 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 I mean, Gale. Uh, Cabaret by Bob Fosse has drag queens in it. Uh, there's, there's a lot of fine drag queen movies. Uh, interesting question. Are you a drag queen? Not at all. Oh, you're not? Well done you for asking that question. Um, I think Priscilla is, is a fabulous uh, movie. I mean, parts of it drag a little bit, let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> here's my favorite part, though. Finally, it's happened to me. When he comes out with the fucking lizard thing. Or, that part. <laughs> Meeting Mr. Right, the man of my dreams. That, that, that true love, or so it seems. That part's amazing. Uh, I love that movie. And Guy Pierce, when he walks into the group of rednecks and goes, he's going to buy a lady a drink. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for your question. What's your name? Jam. Hi, Jam. Please call me Jam. Hi, Jam. Hi. Uh, you may call me Greg. Thank you. One quick comment and then a question. Go quick on. Comment. Um, excited to be here to meet you. Thank uh, you. You responded to a tweet of mine, so I'm just excited that I'm here. Oh, groovy. Yes. Uh, but the question is, and it's funny that you mentioned the, you brought up the March on Washington, because I wanted to ask you a question as a majority straight white guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, young black person. <laughs> I can just see you from the dominant paradigm. Your needs, they don't mean that much to me, but all right. But you, uh... How come you're not out mugging someone, Earth? Shouldn't you be selling crack to a young school child right now, or perhaps beating on hoes? You know, the other week I was at a rodeo... And oh my goodness, it was so funny. A clown came out dressed as our president. <laughs> but, uh, Have you ever been to Wyoming? Oh, what a beautiful state Wyoming is. Crystal clear streams. People carrying firearms in their trucks and fishing and whatnot. Not so many of your type there. Maybe that's what makes the air seem so fresh. (laughs) When white people are together. Yes, sir, Jam. Okay. But it's funny that you mentioned the March on Washington. Yeah. My question actually kind of relates to, um, not necessarily uh, Bayon Rustin, who actually was the organizer. And at the time... And an author. Right. And at the time was an out black gay man, but in today's society, I wanted to ask you, do you think that uh, black gay people face more racism or more homophobia? Well, that's an interesting question, and what a qualified, uh, quantitative answer there. More racism or homophobia, they're sort of on the the cutting edge of both, are they not? (laughs) I'm from California where we had Proposition 8, which was supposed to have gay marriage legalized, and the, the people that led the charge were Mormons from out of state who came in and funded it, but a lot of the black churches in California really supported that. So I would say the homophobia is, um, 
um, this is a horrible word, but um, endemic, slightly intrinsic, uh, and you know this as well. I'm telling you, I'm telling you something you already know. I, I, I feel like gay black men have a real difficult job of it because on the one hand, they're black men, and on the other hand, they're gay, and so they're faced with uh, uh, threats from both sides, and how do you deal with that when uh, 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 the, the church culture seems to be a, a sort of directly homophobic? And, um, and, and Obama, if you remember early in the administration, his, his views were evolving on it, which was the most bullshit fucking sidestepping answer that you've ever heard in your fucking life. Very PC, very PC. Yeah, you got to know where your views are. I've said it a million times on the show. If you're homophobic and it's because of your religious beliefs, your religious beliefs are bullshit. There's no excuse for homophobia. There's no excuse. And if you're racist, like the other day, uh, uh, who was it? Those, those morons who were, what fucking reality show? Was it Big Brother or whatever? One of the morons who was a racist on Big Brother said, I'm not a racist, I'm just from Texas. And it's like, no, that's not an excuse. That's not an excuse. Where you're from and your belief system are shitty excuses. I, I, I wouldn't know how to begin to answer your question without seeming patronizing in some way. Or if you were English, I think you'll find that's patronizing. Um, I, I, I think it's a, 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 an extraordinarily delicate position. And, um, and hopefully one that's going to get resolved over the next... This is the new frontier. Because... Now the enlightened people in this country and people who want to be enlightened can see that the future includes women, gay people, and minorities. And we're dragging everyone behind us. Does that answer it at all? I'll accept that. Thank you, Jam. Thank you. Thank you much. I appreciate it. But since I am a white straight guy... What's with the bitches? Hello. Peep, peep, peep. If you're going to open your mouth, put one uh, fucking thing in it. Let's get some use to it. Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. Is it working? One more and then we'll... Uh, okay. Um, A woman! Hooray! I knew there was one in this room. I appreciate what you said about voting, but I do have a question in terms of, in practical terms, if people do not provide proof of address as to <laughs> say where they live, how do they vote for, say, a governor of a state? How do you prevent, like, well, the, the, everybody the, from one state? Honey, there's no, there's no voter fraud in this country. There, the, the amount That's of voter fraud not. is minuscule. There is minuscule. You can bring Illinois, an electric bill. America. You can bring a thing that shows where you live where you live. That, that's how. And, and, and so what if you don't? If you're on the voter rolls and you have been for years and years, is there really a fucking... Is that what the problem in this country is? That there's too much democracy? And that everyone's being allowed to vote? Sometimes women, sometimes Negroes? It's crazy. Uh, the, uh, uh, and you can look up a million articles, and I suggest you Google it. There is no voter fraud in this country. It's not an issue. It's a made-up issue that they're using to divide exist. us. I mean, I, you're, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, practically, if they don't show a thing, how do they prove where they live? But no, they're... It exists. You what? It exists. 
No, it does not. Yes, it, it does, does not exist. Try the mayor of Harvey, Illinois, Eric Kellogg. Okay. Who? Yeah, plenty of. Look, look. JFK was elected by every dead voter in the state of, state of Illinois. People who are on the voter rolls here for uh, 50, 100 years voted for JFK because his father, Joseph Kennedy, managed the election so that it would go that way. And Nixon took it like a man and sat down and then came back and wrought his fucking havoc on this country. Yes, it exists. Does it exist in practical terms right now in the United States on a presidential or national level or even on a North Carolina level? If it exists in the place you're talking, what was it? Harvey, Illinois. Har- Harvey, Illinois. Then that's an incident I don't know about, and I apologize for not knowing about it. I'm talking about, in general, it- it's-, it's really not the biggest issue. Here's an issue you should consider while you're considering uh, uh, the-, the voter uh, fraud issue. Um, giant corporations have unlimited access to all the candidates now and are allowed to give almost unlimited money to them. Does that not presuppose your disinclination to be involved in electoral politics since you are not able to buy the candidates you wish to sit in office and do your bidding? Is that not more of a concern to you than the fact that the mayor of a town in Illinois may have got elected by some reprobate fucking assholes? Now, what happened may have been a hideous travesty of democracy. I, I can appreciate where you're coming from. I'm just saying there's a lot more important concerns. Voter fraud. The reason why George W. Bush won the election in the year 2000 is that people were taken off the rolls in the state of Florida, that highway patrolmen were posted in front of places where minorities voted, that minority precincts have been winnowed down to nothing, so they have to stand in line. And what you saw in the last election that re-elected Obama was even in places like New Jersey and New York City that were devastated by Hurricane Sandy, and they had limited the places where minorities and people of color and the poor could vote down to nothing. People stood in their lines by the thousands and stood there all fucking day to vote. And that's what happens when they do. And that's why they want to enforce these voter ID laws. That's the only reason. There is no fair and equitable reason they're trying to enforce these laws. Should everyone have a driver's license? No. Are you out of your fucking mind? Some people don't fucking drive. Should everyone have a state ID? Fuck you. What, do we live in 1984 and shit? Are we in Russia in the 30s? I don't have to produce an ID card to the fucking cops every minute of my life. Isn't it bad enough that I have to have my balls rubbed and my picture taken 18 fucking... Thank you. And have a fucking x-ray taken of my wife naked every time I find a fucking plane in this country? And that every email that's sent to me on my Gmail, I know for a fact that Google is handing over to the government. You don't think there's enough fucking government interference in every goddamn moment of our lives that there's somehow some sort of giant fraud that's being perpetrated and stuff? I mean, Kittens McFucking Townish. <laughs> this has been the smartest broadcast in the world. You've been the smartest town in the world. I thank you for coming out. Thank you very much and good night, ladies and gentlemen. I wish you nothing but love. May every page that you turn be a satchel page. May every bell that rings for you be a cool papa bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're very bonds. Good night.